Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. And Grand Rising family, and thanks for starting your week with us again later. Contra Costa College professor Maynu Ampin will take over our classroom. Professor Ampin will focus on Dr. Carter G. Woodson and the origin of African Heritage Month, or Black History Month as most of us uh, call it. Professor Ampin will discuss Dr. Carter's work on African culture and civilization. Professor Ampin uh, claims the topic is systematically ignored by scholars and also the public during this time of the year. For Professor Ampin, though, we'll examine the death of Elijah McLean with family friend Amidian Holmes. But to get us started, entrepreneur uh, Brian Franklin and a movie maker Rick Matthews are both here. But before we go to them, Kevin, good morning. I'd ask you a question. Good morning, man. Carl Nelson. How you feeling? Excellent, brother. Excellent. <laughs> All right. The, the Grammys last night. To me, it, it was sort of it was colorful, but there's a lot of black folks watching the Grammys. I can't wait to find out what the what the, the TV uh, uh, ratings were for the Grammys last night. Right. Let me get your, I, I your talk, your, your take, though, about... Uh, 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 about all these awards, because we're in the awards season. Well, um, I think congratulations should be sent out, you know, well, the, no matter what your opinion is, Taylor Swift wins Album of the Year for a record-breaking fourth time, and now she's in the halls of history along with Frank Sinatra, Paul Simon, and the great Stevie Wonder. Yes, sir, buddy. And you know that's the most coveted award at the Grammys, Album of the Year. Yes. I mean, yeah, you, right. you're in a different region there. And you said she, she's won, she's won it four times. Well, let me ask you this, though, Kevin. Do you know any of her songs? I do not. I've, I I guess I've got FOMO, fear of missing out. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to do a little bit of research on this uh, phenomenon that she has become. And uh, another touching moment was when Celine Dion presented yeah. it because she has been diagnosed with a thing called stiff person syndrome wow i didn't know that was a syndrome i know some stiff people <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and taylor swift got slammed because they said she, she sort of ignored uh when she went up and got the award you know instead of like you know uh, i guess paying homage to her well yeah she, yeah kels wasn't there was he uh, you know so <laughs> <laughs> no they're in vegas already man for the super bowl yeah taylor swift is in her own universe man well, you know, on one day we'll get, because, we'll, you know, tomorrow we're going to talk about the, the um, black musicians' impact on the civil rights movement with musicologist uh, Bill Carpenter. Because, you know, if you read the, the Committee of 300, uh, uh, you'll, you'll see that some of, a lot of these, no, it's a lot of but some of these uh, top-selling uh, artists were, were manufactured. You know, they talk about the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, even though they do have talent, but they were there for a reason. And when you when right. you see a rise like a, a Taylor Swift, you, you gotta wonder is she in that category too? It just makes you think. It it does. While at the same time, there has to be some talent. I mean, yeah. to win four. You, you oh yeah, of, of course. To, yeah. to win four and and to have all of the Swifties or, or the Swifties that follow her career 
And uh, there's a movie out about one of her concerts as well. And uh, so I, when it comes to marketing and branding, there's got to be something behind it. It's not just, you know, you can't take a no-talent person and turn them into a superstar, can you? Or, or let's think of any of them. <laughs> there's such right. a thing as a one-hit wonder. But she's <laughs> many she, of those. Right. And she's far from that. So uh, but maybe it's a sign of the times. You don't need songs that are conscious or uh, and again, I don't know what her music is because she started as a country music star and then somehow flipped into pop music. And uh, I remember when she won her first album of the year, Kanye jumped on stage and said, Beyonce is the queen of pop music. And, uh, and next thing you know, Taylor Swift blows up. Yeah. Well, I'll keep an eye and see how how this phenomenon works out because already she's got the Republicans that mad at her because they think she's a Democrat. <laughs> so and she's working for Biden. And all these psyop uh, theories are being floated around the internet. So we'll see. She's in but, a war. She's in a war with Donald Trump. Right. It's the biggest war ever. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how that who wins that one because yes, he says he's more popular than than she is. So we'll see. But Kevin, it's five after. Let's, let's bring in. Uh, yeah, thanks, man. Let's bring in, I guess, uh, uh, Brian Franklin and Rick Mathis. Gentlemen, brothers, good morning. Grand Rising, Carl, Kevin, greatly appreciate you. This is Brian Bam Franklin in Los Angeles, California, building my ark, raining like crazy on the west. Oh, wow. Uh, let, let me ask you this, Brian. Have, have you, do you know a Taylor Swift song? Have you been following that? Man, you know, interestingly, Carl, when you asked that question, I thought, like, I have no idea either, and I'm a music guy. I actually owned a record label for a while. No, I don't know a Swifty song, period. Wow. You know, we'll, we'll, we're going to ask Bill that tomorrow. He's a, he's a music guy. He's, you know, he, that's what he, he's a curator of music, blank music, so we'll ask him. Well, interesting, though, because she's getting all the accolades. But, I, you know, before we move on, though, uh, Brian, because it's, it's been a minute since you've been on, why don't you give uh, the listeners your background? Yeah, I'll do a real quickie. Thank you so much, Carl. Do we have Dr. Rick Martins with us also this morning? Is Rick with us, uh, Kevin? Not yet. Oh, all right. Very good. Well, I still appreciate you all. So real, real quickly, you all, I'm a technologist. And ironically, Carl, it was four years ago, March, that I was on this show right at the top of the, the pandemic. And I talked about some of the challenges that we're going to run into. And so my background is technology. And so I've been researching technology. I've been researching cooperative economic models. We have some amazing relationships with Dr. David Horn. I had the pleasure, Carl, to spend some time on Saturday in Africa Town with Dr. Gerald Horn and Dr. David Horn. And so basically, I use technology to create change. I have actually, uh, my background, I visited the IBM manufacturing facilities worldwide, HP worldwide. And when I was able to do an active retirement at 36 years old, I became conscious of our black people's inability to retire early. And we've been gravitating to a lot of home-based business models. And so we created a new one called BAM. And ironically, people today call, call me BAM more than they call me Brian. And since the last time you talked to Rick Mathis, they now call him Dr. 
Dr. Rick Masters. So that's the quick version. Technologist, change agent, and I use technology to create changes. I'll close with this. As most of you may know, homelessness is one of our biggest issues in the country. And I mentioned that I'm in Los Angeles. L.A. has the biggest homeless issue in the United States of America. Over 75,000 people living on the streets. Most of them are black people. And we're working to eradicate homelessness. That's one of my biggest challenges and one of my biggest deals we're working on today. Thank you so much, Carl, for all that you do. I've done All right. Well, t- tell us about this, the new program that you're working with, with uh, Rick Mathis. Yeah, Rick has a movement called Be One The Experience, which is about getting black people on code. Rick, Dr. Rick Mathis, is a master at storytelling. As you know, when we control the narrative, when we control media, we can also control what we do and what we think. And so the collaboration is called B1, that's the number one, BAM.com. Again, B1BAM.com. And the bottom line, Rick tells the stories to wake us up. And then BAM has an actionable model of something that we can do from an economics perspective. And the nice thing is with, with Dr. Rick Mathis, with the B1 experience being on code, he's been able to put together his last documentary, has Dr. Boyce Watkins, Dr. Claude Anderson, uh, Riza Islam, you, you name it, uh, Dr. George Frazier. I can't leave Dr. George. He and I talked on Saturday. Hopefully he's up and going to call in this morning also. But it's a collaboration of thought, meaning the message, and then actionable, B1BAM.com. All right. Let's let's talk about the homeless problem for a second here, uh, though, uh, you know, Brian, because, you know, the homeless problem, it's, it's, it's in L.A., it's exacerbated. It, in, but on the East Coast, in our cities like Baltimore, Washington, D.C., where it's cold, the weather's cold, we understand the, 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 uh, the challenges for being homeless. You know, it's not, you're not like you're on Miami Beach or, or you're out in L.A., on, out in Santa Monica, or where the weather's nice. What do you see? Because, you know, the, the, the folks who are, who are dealing with the homeless, don't seem to get any love. And I know the mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass, has made, you know, solving the homeless problem is one of her uh, uh, things that she wants to uh, do complete during her term. But how do you see the homeless problem? Because as you mentioned earlier, quite true, most people are homeless look like us. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me share this with you, Carl, and listeners. We've been researching the the problem for decades, actually. I, I, you know, as a technologist, I try to go deep into the zeros and ones of a situation. And so, what we've been able to do, Carl, and I think this is pretty much across the board, you whole United States. And you're right, California is unique because of the weather. You can actually live outside and not die because of the elements. But we've been able to identify, Carl, the four major contributing factors to the homeless issue, and we believe this is across the board throughout the whole United States, and it's in this order. Number one, mental health, including giving up substance abuse for whatever reason in regards to your giving up. So that's number one. As you know, there are certain people who just don't want to be part of the system. They want to get off the grid. So number one, mental health. Number two is cash flow, and that's what BAM deals with is the cash flow issues. Number three 
is affordable housing, Carl. As you may know, the housing prices in Los Angeles are crazy. The average price for a house in Los Angeles is around $400,000, and I'm talking about in the hood. And then number four, which is the most unique, Carl, is nonprofit individualism. What does that look like? Think about in our underserved communities around the country, one of the things you find is a lot of churches, and most of those churches are working independently. So a recap, number one, uh, excuse me, uh, mental health, number two, cash flow, number three, affordable housing, number four, nonprofit individualism. Doing black history was something Rick and I talk about, Dr. Rick. It's making black history this month, bringing us together from a conscious perspective and an actional perspective. So there you have it, Carl. Yeah, interesting. You know, because the the homeless problem, like I said, it, it's all across the country, and it's more it's more acute in in the coldest cities, uh, Detroit, Chicago, uh, and Baltimore, and Washington D.C. Of course, because we talked about with the homeless, with some of the homeless uh, uh, advocates in Baltimore, because there were three elderly sisters, I think, were sleeping on the pavement out in the cold in Baltimore. And this is just this this is this is just not right. I'm just sorry. I, this is not right. We've we've got to solve this problem because those the, the problems are ours. So listen, we're coming up on a break. When we come back, though, uh, Brian, tell us what what the solutions you have for the homeless problem. And how can we, the listeners, how can we help you? Family, you want to join this conversation with Brian Franklin? Reach out to us. Our telephone number is 800-450-7876. And we'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Free in the DMV, run FM. 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 800-450-7876. Number to call to speak to our guest, Brian Franklin. I see that Dr. Rick Mathis has joined us as well in discussing the homeless. And I've got some calls for you, uh, Brian. Before we left uh, for the the break, I was asking you, so what are some of the solutions that you're working on to help the homeless? Yes, Carl. I'm so happy that Dr. Rick Mathis has been able to get in with us also. So for us, Carl, we, we deal with item number two, which is cash flow. Let me give you the quick version of how we deal with cash flow with homeless. The first thing that we do, Carl, we ask a homeless person that's not dealing with massive um, mental health issues, just as long as they're, let's call it semi-normal slash normal. We ask them if they have a mobile phone. And the questions we ask are yes or no. So four questions. Do you have a mobile phone? Yes or no. Okay. And the reason why the mobile phone is so important, it allows that person to connect with people that love them, people that miss them. And if they don't have a mobile phone, we give them a mobile phone, all services included. And by the way, Carl, this this solution comes from under the Obama administration, where he actually was giving mobile phones to people who have EBT, uh, SSI, or or Medi-Cal, or any federal programs, okay? So that's the first question. And then we ask three technology-based questions. Question number two is, can you scan a QR code from a mobile phone, yes or no? Some people don't even know what a QR code is. So we go to question number three. Can you go to a website from a mobile phone? Go ahead, Carl. Oh, yeah. Well, let's bring in, uh, before we take the call, Dr. Rick Mathis has joined us. Uh, Rick Mathis, good morning. It's been a minute. Yeah. 
Yes, how you gentlemen doing? Uh, part of my tardiness, it has been a very uh, eventful weekend here in Atlanta. Uh, we were uh, with uh, Dr. Umar yesterday. He spoke at the New Black Wall Street for uh, Black History Month. And uh, I think my phone just malfunctioned from all the excitement. So uh, I was trying to dial in, and it was, it was the craziest thing. So I had to reset it a few times. But nevertheless, uh, thanks for having me. I uh, want to respect your time. So definitely, uh, you know, understand time is important and time is mathematics. So, um, all right. Uh, tell us yeah, your, your role in all this at 22 after the top of the hour. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Man, so my role, uh, we've just uh, released a project with uh, Dr. Boyce Watkins called B1. Uh, B1 simply means black first. And uh, the film is, uh, it's about being on code. You know, as black people, uh, we need to establish an unspoken code, you know. So the film opens with the question, what is it going to take for black people to get on code and put black people first? And uh, we're speaking about putting black people first in the areas of health, in areas of relationship, in the areas of education, uh, economics, uh, media, when it comes to the media that we're consuming. You know, are we on call with the music that we listen to? Are we on call with the films? Are we on call when we're posting on social media? Uh, so that's the synopsis of the film. This is an amazing film that features everybody from, again, Dr. Boyce Watkins, uh, George Frazier, Dr. Claude Anderson, Professor James Small, uh, Rizzo Islam, Queen of Four, uh, Ash Cash, Nuri Muhammad, speech from Arrested Development, the list goes on and on. So this is an exciting project. Uh, we will have uh, an amazing event coming up on the 23rd and the 24th in Philadelphia uh, with IBB Investment Club, where we are doing this in the spirit of the Reverend Dr. Leon Sullivan. Uh, you know, he did some amazing things in Philadelphia. And uh, it's time that we just love on each other. One of the topics that uh, that Dr. Umar spoke about uh, yesterday was love, just really loving black people. You know, the issue is, um, one of the issues that I see is black people just don't love being black. No matter how amazing we are, the amazing inventions that we've done, the amazing things that we've done all across this globe, Black people simply don't love being black. And we just have to fall in love with being black. You know, this is Black History Month, and this is a time where we say we invented this, we invented that. But when are we really going to unify in the name of love and learn to trust each other? Yeah, and that's the thing that's going to you know, help the community as a whole. You know, I'll, I'll share the definition of being on code as time goes on, but, you know, that's the question that I have for the audience today. When are we really going to fall in love with being black? All right, 25 at the top. As I mentioned, folks want to talk to you. Charles is up first. He's online, too. He's calling from Baltimore. Good morning, Charles. Yes, how's everyone today? Great, great. Yeah, I'm wondering um, what happened to the promises 
of Ronald Reagan and the Jimmy Carter administration because homelessness was a major problem, and they were sleeping all on the White House steps, all around the Capitol, and they were telling us that they were going to resolve this. And here it is, 2024, we don't see any type of resolutions. We keep hearing, you know, what is, you know, the solution? And that's not a valid question. It's a deflection from the lack of planning, the lack of an agenda, the lack of goals. See, we keep buck dancing while they keep sending back the money for the homeless. Why are they returning the federal funds? All right, and what Charles is referring to, uh, what Charles is referring to, let me jump in here for a second. He's referring to the fact that in Baltimore, they sent back some money that was for the homeless from federal money. And a lot of states are doing that. You know, it's all political. They've done that, especially the, in Florida and Texas. They've been sending back the money that the, the federal government sent them to help, uh, you know, underserved people in the states. But anyway, uh, Brian or, or Rick, you want to tackle that with Charles' question? And Charles, I thank you for your call. Yeah, let me jump on that one, uh, Brother Charles. You are so right, number one, unfortunately. Number two, it was Reagan that actually was sending people to California with one-way trips to live on our streets here in Los Angeles. And then number three, regarding the federal funds that get sent back, we had the exact same issue here in Los Angeles. We had millions of dollars that did not get spent. We had vouchers for people to live in uh, temporary housing that did not get spent through an organization here in Los Angeles called LASA. And so that's why, Charles, our company has gotten very aggressively involved in not, again, band-aiding the homeless issue that's been here in Los Angeles. The, the rescue mission has celebrated over 100 years on Skid Row. So we've got to put together systems in place so that we can actually eradicate, and that is exactly what we're doing. The, 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 the mission for creating the homeless eradication is called BAMGIVES.com. So, again, we have to have strategic models that are scientifically based so that we can eradicate. And, again, I hear you. You are right, and that is what we are doing is actually eradicating. All right, 28 at the top. Now, let me go to Rick for a second here because Rick, Rick is telling us that we need to be on code. And, of course, Andy Fuller has been teaching us about staying on code. Rick, how are we going to get our folks on, on code? Because, you know, there's a lot of self-hate that's abounds in our community, and many of our people don't know why we hate each other. You know, some of it has been self-induced. Some of it, of course, has been organized as a third hand. It keep us disunified. So how do we get our folks on code? What, and, how, and what's the role that you're going to play? Yeah, so just to chime in on the homelessness, uh, one thing that I want you all to just kind of reflect on for a moment, if you look at uh, homelessness, the most uh, the most countries or the countries that are most affected by homelessness are the ones that appear to be the most prosperous. You know, when you travel the world, you travel to Africa and other parts of the world, uh, you don't see the homelessness, you know, that you see here in America. You know what I'm saying? You just don't see it. And that's what always amazes me because here it is, uh, you know, the gross uh, natural product for America, I believe is $17 trillion, $18 trillion annually, but there's homelessness here. So in order for us to uh, get on code, and I'll share the definition as it, uh, as it is uh, defined in the movie, what it means to be on code, 
It simply means being sensitive to what the black society needs to survive and thrive and putting those needs first and foremost before one's personal needs. So in other words, thinking about the group first or thinking as a group first. You know, once we begin to to really become uh, sensitive to what our needs are as a group, then I think that's going to uh, help. But it, it really it really evolves around love. So uh, in the film, that's one of the things that we show. We show love in the film. You know, a lot of people said that in the answer when you asked, what is it going to take for black people to get on code and put black first? It's going to take love. But in filmmaking, you have to show it uh, versus tell it. So we showed that by this uh, young black couple that uh, met at the uh, All Black Natural Convention, and uh, they ended up falling in love and getting in, getting married and, you know, having a baby. And we show that, that tell that story in the film, and it's a beautiful story on the things that happen, you know, to cause that to transpire. So, again, to answer your question, uh, uh, Dr. Nelson or Mr. Nelson, uh, the thing that I'm doing is really just having conversations around being on code with this film. Uh, we have a 140-page curriculum that goes with the film that really talks about things, healthy exercises that we can do to get on cold and to put black first. Gotcha. 29 away from the top of there. Some more folks want to talk to you, fellas. Line two, Mark's also in Baltimore. Good morning, Mark. Hey, good morning. How y'all doing? And, uh, and Carl, you know, the, the, the homeless situation is something close to my heart. Um, Carl was actually here in Baltimore seeing those old ladies on um, sleeping out in the alleys and all that kind of stuff uh, uh, here in Baltimore. And, you know, here, um, uh, Ms. Flowers, who was on your show, worked with the homeless, she always talked about housing first. And, you know, because a lot of the homeless people, I was homeless because of addictions, clean and sober now 33 years, but a lot of the, the, the people, the, the, the mindset, a lot of them been out there so long and stuff like that. Um, that you have to, like, kind of triage them first and then, you know, get the help. But here in Baltimore, we also, we have the whole, um, like, we have a homeless services probably in every city. And, guys, y'all probably, y'all, y'all won't even believe it. But they literally had to get $10 million back to the feds because they messed the paperwork up to get the grant for homeless services here in Baltimore. And as far as unity, we got to start practicing the uh, Francis Crest Wellesley uh, anti-racist um, behaviors such as um, stop call- name-calling one another, stop cursing one another, stop squabbling with one another, stop being discourteous, stop stealing from one another, stop robbing one another, stop fighting one another, stop killing one another, stop using drugs and stop selling drugs to one another. And I think we have to, we, if we, practice that and, and, and we put that on blast, um, that'll help a lot. Along with programs like we got here in Baltimore, we had a youth forum the other day called with a mayor and then with air. And, um, you know, and that's a good thing, man. You know, anybody that could do anything, um, please do it. Y'all have a good day. All right, thanks. Thanks uh, for your call, Mark. It's 26 minutes away from the top there. We're going to take another short break. We're back with Brian Franklin and Dr. Rick Mathis. Family, you want to join this conversation, reach out to us. We're at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. We're in the DMV, run FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL for information.
is power. And good morning once again, family. 22 minutes away from the top of the hour. I guess Brian Franklin, Dr. Rick Mathis, and they're just, uh, discussing their program, what they're going to do to help the homeless, also to help us get on code. Before we go back to them, let me just remind you, coming up later this morning, we're going to speak with Contra Costa College professor Manu Ampin. Dr. Ampin will, you know, discuss and focus actually on, on Dr. Carter G. Woodson and the origin of African Heritage Month, as he calls it. Most of us call it Black History Month. He'll explain why. Also, we're going to t- look, examine the death of Elijah McCain, a young man was killed recently, and his, why his family and friends didn't get the notoriety as, as what happened, say, to Trayvon Martin. So we're going to look at that as well. That's today. Later this week, though, uh, we, uh, civil rights activist William Acosta Ricks. And he, he's one of the few civil rights activists that we have marched with Dr. King. He also he, he marched with... Uh, with members of SYNC, he was there with Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, John Lewis, all that. He was part of that group. He's going to join us as we continue our Black History Month salute. Also, we're going to look at the influence of black music in, on the civil rights movement with the musicologist Bill Carpenter. Also, uh, black politics expert Dr. James Taylor from the University of San Francisco will be here. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dick Gregory's son, Johansi, his youngest son, will be joining us as well to talk about Greg's movement in the civil rights movement, or Greg's work in the civil rights movement, pardon me. And also, we're going to look at uh, Black Wall Street with uh, Tulsa native uh, Karen Carrington. So if you're in Bo- uh, Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, let's go back to Brian and, and Rick now about their project they're working on. So let me ask both of you fellas, how can how can the people who are listening right now, how can they get involved? Mm, Rick, you want to go first or you want me to go first? Yeah, you can, you can, you can leave, Brian. All right, very good. So first of all, we, we bought a domain. That domain is b1bam.com. As you all heard, Dr. Rick Mathis mentioned also is economics, and from a group, group economics perspective, we just went through Kwanzaa, and one of the tenets of Kwanzaa is Ujamaa, which is cooperative economics. And if you look at the third richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, we, we, our model is a e-commerce platform. And so Dr. Rick does an amazing job of storytelling, getting us to wake up using the media. And then BAM has a model that we can tap into. And so we want everybody, Carl, thank you so much for asking that question. Go to b one BAM.com. That takes you to our website. You'll see the 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 image of the B1 experience on the home page. You can click that. Go to Rick's website. You can watch the video. But more importantly, for our piece, just like Carl, four years ago when I was on the show at the front end of the pandemic, I talked about how 199 can change people's lives. And so we were. Matter of fact, there's a. We recorded that 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 as you record, but we stored the recording of when I was on your show in 2020. We would love for people to actually listen to that interview about what I talked about then and now, and and hear how on point that we were as to some solutions. So our goal. 
go to B1BAM.com, click the link to get to B1 Experience, join BAM for that one-time fee. When you do that, you're helping our homeless, and you're collaborating with us with the Ujamaa model for the 21st century. So there you have it. Rick, you have the floor, Dr. Mathis. Yeah, man, that was awesome. So uh, the thing that I want to share and just kind of um, bring to the forefront, we have a we established a foundation called the Gwen Lewis Foundation for my mom who made a transition in January of 2022. And uh, one of the things, so one of the initiatives of the foundation is to uh, provide housing for creatives that are you know, aspiring to do great things and, you know, just may have fallen down on, on hard times and need somewhere, you know, to, to be housed while they are while they are pursuing the dream of being an actor or actress or, you know, a filmmaker and um and things like that. So um so that's something that that we're doing when you ask, you know, what are what are we doing to eradicate this uh homelessness problem? Um one of the things, too, I want to just kind of bring to the attention, I don't know if you all seen the video that's been circulating on uh, social media uh, where the governor of Massachusetts, Myra Headley, uh, has sparked, you know, a firestorm of criticism over the closing of a recreation center in a predominantly black neighborhood, Roxbury neighborhood in Boston. I went to high school with a brother who was from Roxbury. And uh, what they're doing is they're using the facility to house illegal immigrants. So you have to ask yourself, what type of country do we live in where, you know, we don't take care of our own first. We don't put our own first. You know what I'm saying? We house uh, illegal immigrants in a recreation center, and we have homeless men. There's a homeless man, if you haven't seen the video, that's really just cursing the police out and is very angry. It has a right to be. You know, how are you going to bring these people in our neighborhood? and house them in our neighborhood when we don't have a place to stay. And the irony in all of this is this man said he works a 40-hour-a-week job and can't afford to pay rent, as we all know that is skyrocketing in these cities. Uh, right now in Atlanta, for a one-bedroom in the city, is $1,600 a month. Yeah, some so people say that's pretty good. <laughs> but thank, thanks, uh, uh, Dr. Rick Mathis. And, and, and family, again, I have to caution. We have to be careful. Don't let us them play us against the immigrants. They're the ones who put in the immigrants in our communities. You know, as I mentioned, they don't send them to Wyoming or, or the Dakotas. They don't give them, send them into places in Beverly Hills, Bel Air, or, or all those places, all those rich places. They put them in our neighborhoods because they want us to react. So just be careful of that. Don't get played. Mm-hmm. That's how the system of racism and white supremacy works. We, we start working for, the, for them on their causes, and they sit back and laugh. So let's not get played by that. Anyway, 16 away from the town. Howard's joining us from Los Angeles. Howard, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, oh, Howard, before you continue, because you kept asking me about we do, do the research in, into Kali Muhammad's death. Well, uh, Professor Small has done it, and I posted it on, on social media. So just take a look, because you keep asking me when we're going to do review at the, the controversial death. Uh, and it was uh, from Prof, Professor Small's uh, point of view, it wasn't controversial because he did have some health challenges. But just take a look at what I posted on social media, because you you continue to ask me about that. But there's the answer there from Professor Small. But go ahead. What's your question this morning? I was going to comment, and they didn't comment on too. Um, we have this phenomenon called NIMBY, not in my backyard. And, and a lot of places they can put in uh, areas uh, not being a hood, like 
that could have uh, rehabilitation centers, some uh, housing and things of that nature. And these rich folks don't want to back in their backyard. They don't want to see the problem. And I guess that might be a reminder of how close they might be to losing their homes or something like that. And that's a that's a big phenomenon that uh, that that you can't build nothing in a in an area that's not in the in the ghetto. Like you know, they want everything over here, but they got room and space over there. But they their thing is they think it's going crime rate is going to go up and the property value is going to go down. But if you give a person a place to stay and decent food and clothing, he won't have no reason to go out there and commit crimes. You know. That's a, that's a big motivation of, of crime. Because I look at myself, if I was talking to them, I'd be a hell of a criminal because I'm going where the rich folks are. And uh, and um, we have an uh, um, election out here where, uh, what's the guy's name? Yes, Cohen is running. He came down here with some different ideas about dealing with crime and not just locking people up. And they, they're these district attorneys running on the uh, state of trying to just going back to always just locking people up, not solving the problem. And um, if you think about it, um, a lot of these uh, smash and grab things, they're happening in rich areas because that's where the money is. So it's a, it's a big phenomenon with this thing about not putting stuff in my backyard because they don't want to see the problem. They want to hide. And you can't hide from it because we all got to live out here some kind of way, and they're going to interact with us one way or another. So um, I think they got to get rid of that phenomenon, that NIMBY thing. Because it's, it's, it's not good. It's not good at all. all right. Well, let's give him a chance to respond to that. Howard, I thank you for your call. It's 13 minutes away from the top there. Uh, Brian or Rick, you want to tackle what Howard just uh, mentioned? Yeah, ahead, I, mean, Dr. I, Mattis. yeah I, I would just say, um, you know, again, it is, it is an issue, and not to uh, to be combative towards, you know, the immigrants. The thing that I'm looking at is, just shine light on what's happening, on the manipulation that's happening. True, you know, they're not going to put this in their backyard, so to speak. You know what I'm saying? If, you, if, you, if you're the governor and you really want to help these people, take them to an area that's, that's predominant. You know what I'm saying? Because you know if you put these people in Roxbury, which is a predominantly black community, it's going to start a firestorm. You know what I'm saying? It's going to create chaos. You know what I'm saying? But we do. We have to coexist in this world. And how are we going to do that, you know, with, with the manipulation and the things like that are, that, are, that are going on? So, you know, that's that's my comment. So just to see what's going on, be able to see through the lies and the deceit so right, that Brian? you don't act and respond emotionally. Right. Yeah, we're an emotional people. You know that. Brian, your thoughts? Yeah, my, my thoughts, as you know, here in Los Angeles, Howard, we, we squeeze the homeless into a little area called Skid Row. And there's mm-hmm. a small number of people that are making a lot of money on the problems. The bottom line is we got to get to, again, collaboration. We got to get to eradication. And we've got to be actionable. We can talk about the challenges. It's about what is each one of us actually doing. So that's the key is what are we doing? individually to affect these issues collectively. All right. Ten minutes away from the top. Let me ask uh, uh, Rick this this question. So, Rick, this movie that, that you've you've done, is it out yet? Is it available on what platform? Uh, yeah. So if you uh, go to B1TheMovie.com, you can uh, access it there. We have uh, streaming capabilities. We have a custom QR code that is... Uh, housed in a, a collector's item that we've created. Uh, one of the issues that I saw when releasing this film, uh, 
Dr. Boyce Watkins lost about 500 and some thousand followers on Instagram with the click of a button where they deleted his Facebook page and his Instagram page for no reason. And um, so I said, the thing that I want to do is I want to create a product to have this where we have a tangible product so it can't be deleted from the digital platform where there is a tangible CD, a tangible DVD, but you also have a QR code that you can scan and, and watch the project. So, yes, the project is out. Uh, we will be in Philadelphia again on the 23rd and 24th of, uh, of Black History Month uh, honoring Dr. with the Reverend Dr. Uh, Leon Sullivan. Uh, we also will be uh, having a B1 experience in Atlanta on the 17th uh, where we're going to have five different rooms where we experience the five different episodes uh, that are produced in the film. You know, we have five different questions and five different areas that we uh, have conversation around uh, as it relates to uh, the film. You know, and one being, um, is it racist for black people to put black people first? You know, that's one of the questions that we ask. So, yeah. yes, so it, uh, for more information, you can go to b1themovie.com. Let me ask you this, because you're a movie maker. You, you do, this is what you do for a living. And we talked about platforms and people losing likes and uh, on these other folks' platform. Don't you think it's time that we have our own platform, or, you know, for, for, for work that you do so that we can get the message out to our people? I definitely do. Um, you know, we have some that, that, that people have invented. For example, Isaac Hayes III, you know, Isaac Hayes' son, uh, who lives right here in Atlanta, has a platform called Fanbase that's uh, similar to Facebook and Instagram. So we have some. The thing is, is we just have to get our people to start using it because, you, as you know, we are the trendsetters. Like, look what we did for uh, Clubhouse. You know, we, we took that from a no-name brand to, um, you know, to a billion-dollar product. You know, when, when they assessed, you know, what, what it was worth, it became a billion-dollar asset overnight you know, once black people start using it. And then when we removed ourselves from the platform, for the most part, then it went back, you know, down to a um, million-dollar platform, so to speak. But, but yeah, we it is time for us to have our own platforms so that we can access this information. And I do see that coming uh, in the near future. I know a lot of people that are actually establishing platforms, so we will have that in, in the coming months. I see that being uh, manifesting this year. All right, great. I love that. Brian, let me ask you this, though. You know, the, part of the problem is, too, that we have some folks in our community, let's be real, you know, they think the uh, white man's ice is colder, his sugar's sweeter, and his water wetter. So how are we going to reach those brothers and sisters who, who are in, you know, right now people say they're in the sun, a sunken place? How do we reach them? Yeah, and, you know, interestingly, Carl, we have a gentleman on this line right now. That is why that B1 BAM is so important, is the message. We've got to, like, for example, when I talked about the homeless situation with number one being mental health. So we got to get our mindset right, and that's where the movie makers come in. Get the mindset right, and then direct our brothers and sisters to actionable models. Like, let me let me give you an example of action. Actually, well, hold on, hold that thought right there, uh, Brian. We got to take a quick break, and yeah, I'll let you give the example when we get back. It's six minutes away from the top of the hour, family. You want to join this conversation with Brian Franklin and Dr. Rick Mathis? Reach out to us at eight hundred four five zero. 7876, your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. 
where information is power. And good morning once again, family. Uh, thanks for rising with us this morning. Our guest, Brian Franklin, Dr. Rick Mathis, and discussing some, how they're using their media and their programs to alleviate some of the problems facing our community. And one of the ones that we talked about earlier this morning was about the homelessness. But, Brian, you were about to tell us, a, a, give to us a, a story or something, so go ahead. Yeah, very, very quickly. One of the things that you may not know, Carl, I listen to the replays a lot. And just recently, when I've been waking up early, I, I, I listened and I called in and I talked to the guests. And regarding that, just three of your guests most recently, starting with Dr. Gerald Horn, talked about he's going to be in Africa Town over the weekend. I was there to support him and buy his book. Uh, you had Dr. Tate on. He and I are talking about doing some bartering regarding our services his solutions for health care. And then just recently you had Lauren Butler and her husband on that were doing the book fair over the weekend. We're in communication. I just wanted to make the point that when you bring on these guests like us and others, it's important that the listeners actually dial in and support. I believe that is how we can really resolve some of our issues because, Carl, you're you're doing a masterful job as long as I've known you now. It's it's over a decade. You just you have an amazing this term that I use. Not you call it I think a school, but I call it a collaboratory of some brilliant minds. So Carl, I want to thank you and to the listeners. Please tap into the B one experience. Please tap into BAM and we try to make it as easy as possible. B one bam.com thank you so much carl all right and, and dr rick what's the what, what are projects i know you're always working on different projects what's the next one you've got uh, on deck for us or in the oven oh man so we have one that we're working on now uh that's centered around gun violence uh we have a mother that lost her son to gun violence she had sent her son off to school at uh family university and uh, i think he had been down there a year year and a half and uh he got. He ended up getting robbed, and you know they took his car, took his money. Um, and the crazy thing about it is, man, when you know they arrested the guys, they had the money in their pocket with blood on it. Oh, his wow. his blood. That's you know. So that shows you where we are in the in the help and the attention that you know um, we need to give to these issues that are that are traumatizing the black community. You know what I'm saying? We have. Issues that are, are, are really, we have to change the narrative because, you know, the young people have bought into this microwave age that I can get rich, I can have millions right now, you know, as a result of what's being played in the, in the media. So, you know, we really have to get back to loving each other and really uh, putting in the hard work and, and you know, and, and then it'll pay off. And then I totally agree. Off. Totally agree. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Brian and Rick, how can folks reach you? They want to get involved and support your project. All right. So for, for me, listeners, let me give you my digital business card, which is CEOBAM.com. That gets you all of my verticals, my socials, and how to engage with us. Again, CEOBAM.com. Thank you so much, Carl, for giving us this opportunity. All right, Dr. Rick Mathis. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, so you can follow me at uh, Rick Mathis on all social media platforms. That's R-I-C without the K, Mathis. Uh, again, you can follow us or you can access us with uh, at B1BAM.com and also uh, B1TheMovie.com. So uh, thanks again, uh, Carl Nelson. Again, man, you are a trailblazer. You are really uh, – I want to commend you for uh, – being the, the, the conduit to have these conversations, you know, in our community around black issues, around things that really, uh, that we really need to talk about and really need to address. So I salute you for that. And I just say, keep winning, my brother. You're doing an excellent job. All right. Thanks for the kind work, fellas. And thank you for the work that you're doing in trying to reach our community. Four minutes now after the top. I'll say good morning to Medean Holmes. Good morning, Ms. Holmes. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. How about yourself? How are you doing this morning? You know, I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Well, uh, we want to talk about Elijah, Elijah McCain. Now, you know, people know about Trayvon and they know about Emmett Till, but uh, many people don't know what, uh, what happened to Elijah McCain. So I want you to fill us in. Tell us the story of Elijah McCain. Absolutely. So the first thing that I'll say is that um, Elijah McCain's story is an extension of Emmett Till, of Tamir Rice, of Trayvon Martin, and all the countless names that um, we as a community and as a people have had to endure. So as I tell this story, just know that, one, um, he is, again, a reflection of our history, and we're living it out loud in this timeline. And then, two, um, he was a, he was a beautiful soul from a beautiful family. And I, while I'm not a part of his family, um, I do want to say that the echoes of their pain are very real, and I can only be an echo and a scratch of surface of what they are enduring. So Elijah McLean, at the time of his murder, he was 23 years old, and he was a young man that was in pursuit of just how to engage through love and healing. He was a self-taught violinist. And he was also a massage therapist. So those were the two things that really just gave his heart joy, was being able to soothe people through music and soothe them through um, healing processes. So he was known for going to the local cat shelter and playing his violin to calm and to soothe the animals. And so as he was embarking on what was said to be a beautiful life um, and, you know, the promise of his life, was afforded to all of us. Unfortunately, it was that that promise was was removed and we've been restricted of it because of an encounter with the police. And when he was the, the night of his murder, murder on August 24th, 2019, he was on his way home. He had walked over to a convenience store that was only a few blocks away from his home. And as he was coming back, it was again August in Colorado. It doesn't mean that it's still summery weather. Um, you're going to be chilly and the, the nights in August. And so he had a jacket on and he also had on a mask for his face and he was anemic. So he was essentially simply just walking home and trying to make it back to um, where he could rest his head. And unfortunately, there was someone in the community that called the police and said that there was a there was someone that looked sketchy. That was the words that the person used to to report him. And they said that he looked sketchy. He was walking down the street. He had on a mask. And Elijah had his, Airpo- his AirPods in his ear, so he was dancing to music. But just simply 
walking down the street. And so when Officer Nathan Woodyard showed up, it was less than 10 seconds before he had his hands on Elijah. He told Elijah to stop, and Elijah was startled. He didn't really know what was going on, so he went to take his earbuds out of his ear, and the officer, Nathan Woodyard, continued to escalate the situation. And within 15 seconds, Elijah was already up against the wall, pinned up against the wall, trying to figure out what was happening. And only moments later, backup was engaged, and two additional officers, one by the name of Randy Rodima, another by the name of Jason Rosenblatt, they showed up and continued to escalate the situation. So within less than two minutes, they were putting Elijah in a carotid hold, and he was trying to ask questions about what was happening, what was going on. And they, they tried to put him in a carotid hold one time, and it failed. And then they tried a second time, and he lost consciousness. And so after he lost consciousness, he was on the ground. He was face down, stomach down in um, what they call the prone position, and he vomited inside of his mask. And so as he's regaining consciousness and trying to gasp for air, he's breathing in his own vomit. And so he's trying to communicate to the officers that he's having problems breathing, and the officers are not um, offering any kind of support or any kind of um, rescue position he just continues to breathe in the vomit in his mask. And so at very shortly thereafter, he started to suffer from acidosis and hypoxia. And that's essentially the vomit is being now breathed back into his, um, his lungs. And he is starting to lose the oxygen from his brain to his brain. So every chance that the officers had to deescalate when they were at that crossroad, they chose violence. They didn't choose de-escalation. They continued to pin Elijah down, and he was suffering, and he was essentially starting to deteriorate right there on the ground. Multiple officers continued to show up. At the end of the day, there were about 14 officers on scene. So there were 14 officers of witness to the way that Elijah was being treated. And on the body cam footage, you actually see one of the officers instruct another to call the reporting party, the person that called Elijah, to call that person back because multiple officers are also heard asking, why were we called in the first place? Why were we called out here? What was the crime? And none of them could answer that. One of the officers calls the reporting party back to ask, did you feel threatened? Were you in his proximity? Was he a threat? Was he looking to harm? And the reporting party responded, no, he just looks sketchy. And that officer reported that back out to all of the officers on scene. So all of the officers on scene now have full awareness that there wasn't even really understanding of why they were called to engage with him this way. And Elijah continued to deteriorate. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. 
officers. Right, let me let me jump um, in here for a second before you continue. So was he resisting when when he seems a very slender young man? You know, it wasn't you know buffed and all that kind of stuff. But was he resisting when the officers you know slammed him up against the wall? Did he did he attack them in any way? Do you know of none of that? None of that. He didn't do any of that. He was up against the wall. He was trying. He was simply asking questions. And one of the officers on the body cam footage tried to claim that that Elijah grabbed for one of the officer's guns, but he didn't even have the capacity to do that. His hands were completely behind his back. He didn't resist at all. He didn't fight. He wasn't pushing. And when he was on the ground, he wasn't fighting. He was you can hear him consciously communicating. I'm just different. I don't do anything. I don't hurt flies. I am. I'm an introvert. He's communicating and trying to let them know this is who I am. I'm not that type of person. That's not who I am. So Elijah was not resisting at all. And what time of day was this going on? This was at about between it was it was right after 10 p.m. on the 24th of August. All right. So the nighttime. And he also mentioned that they, they put a carotid hold on him, which is a chokehold. I know in L.A., we, you know, at one time we championed them and had them force the LAPD to stop using that because they, they, they would, you know, they would, that was how they, the one way they would train it, especially black uh, people they thought was suspicious and put a chokehold on them. And, you know, uh, I remember the, the whole debate that the maybe we're built anatomically different. That's why we die because they say they use it on everybody. But it seems like black, only black people die or, or get hurt when they use that whole, the chokehold. But my question is, is that banned? Is that legal for the police department? Where, is, where are we talking about, Aurora or Denver in Colorado? Yeah, we're talking about Aurora, Colorado. At the time of his murder, it wasn't a banned um, it wasn't a banned policy, but it is now. It has since been banned. Yeah, since, since Elijah's death, has been banned. Correct. Yes. And 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 what happened after after you know? Of course, he was in some distress. Did they did they uh, ask for EMT or or you know emergency services or, or medical help for Elijah? They did. And I'll tell you what, hold that thought right there, uh, Medium. We got to take a short break here. I'll let you tell us. Man, this story is just distressing, but it happens all the time, unfortunately, to some of our young people. 800-450-7876. Medium Holmes is with us, and we're discussing the death of Elijah. Elijah. And we got to figure out why he died and why the other big question is why it's not being talked about, especially in our community, the Elijah McLean family. 800-450-7876. You want to join this conversation, reach out to us. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, you're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 20 minutes after the top there, we're with Medea and Holmes. She's a friend of the Elijah McCain family. She's a young man who was killed in, by police officers in Aurora, Colorado. It's close to the, just outside of Denver. And the question that I've been asking, why aren't people talking about this more? You know, we talked about Emmett Till, uh, Tamir Rice, uh, Trayvon. And we've had their mothers on. Those of you who listen to us for, for quite some time have heard uh, Mamie Till Mobley. She's been on here a couple of times before she transitioned. Also, Tamir Rice's mom was on, um, I think, last month. And Trayvon's mom was on sometime last year as well. And tra- by the way, Trayvon's got, I think, have his birthday coming up and they're having a celebration for him in Miami. But uh, this, his death 
Elijah McKenzie ranks up amongst those three as well, as we all know about young men dying at the hands of the police department. So maybe on your thoughts on that, why why hasn't this, you know, reached the level of the consciousness of, of the black community like the others? Yeah, I think when we talk about um, Elijah, I think that the proximity that the black community has to a state of the state of Colorado is not as prevalent in, in, in a lot of spaces. And so I think that when you have communities, black communities that are trying to figure out how to heal in, in a homegrown fashion, right? Like trying to figure out how do we come together as a collective, as a community, there's an internal approach to that. So the external support that happens if you don't have the same type of proximity and volume of voices, um, some of these stories can get lost. I think Elijah's story is one that has, um, you know, been one of those stories that hasn't had a lot of attention. And honestly, uh, Mr. Nelson, my heart bleeds for the other black bodies that have the same type of um, demographic. They're not getting as many of the external volume voices as you know other other names have, and 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 that that's the reason why I started out the show of you know this is Elijah's story is um, an echo and a reflection of the history that you know that we've seen, and you know if you go to the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, and you have those pillars at the lynching memorial, there are those names that are listed as unknown. Right. And that's just been the reality of how we as a people have been terrorized and tortured in this country. And there are so many names that we don't know to call upon. So true. So many names of faceless names that, 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 you know, have suffered the same consequences at the hands of authorities. And these are the ones that we know. But what can we do to help Elisha's family? Yeah, so I think, um, so just one more piece of his story that I wanted to make sure that I said in this space, when um, it, it, the police ha- had their, <clears throat> the police had their, um, the their contribution to Elijah's murder, but there were paramedics that were also involved in this. And when the paramedics showed up, after all of this was happening as Elijah, as Elijah was dying in the street, the paramedics actually injected Elijah with 500 milligrams of ketamine because the police were claiming that Elijah had excited delirium. And and that's the same narrative of the superhuman strength, right? There's this narrative that they try to leverage to justify their behavior. And the paramedics saw Elijah's condition and still injected him with 500 milligrams of ketamine, which is equivalent to how you would sedate a full-grown horse. And Elijah weighed 130 pounds. So, So with that said, there were five um, five people that ultimately went to trial um, in the midst of his death, and, and, and the trial itself has been a lack of justice. So the way that people can help— Well, before you go there, though, no, this is important. We don't want to skip over this on, on the paramedic's role. Why did the—again, explain to us why the paramedics gave him such a high dosage. So they, it was unjust. Let me say that first. But their their logic and what they said is that they wanted to give him a dose that they would. So if when you when you dose someone with ketamine, you're supposed to do it based on the weight of the person. 500 milligrams is the maximum dose that you can give outside of a hospital. So when the paramedics 
injected him, when they were asked, why did you use such a high dose? What they said was we wanted to, we didn't want to have to call a doctor to get permission to increase the dose. So they gave him the maximum. So if they would have given him 100 milligrams and they didn't see the same effects that they wanted to see, they would have had to call a doctor to ask if they could give him more. And they didn't want to make that call. That was their reasoning. And again, why this particular drug, if you will? So ketamine is used to um, sedate someone that is going into a state of um, of excited delirium. And, and what that does is it calms, down, it calms the person down to a point of sedation so that they, quote, won't be a threat to themselves. So when you see someone, if ever you look up the term excited delirium and just watch the videos of people that are experiencing that, Elijah was 100% opposite. He was laying in state. He wasn't moving. He wasn't trying to resist. He didn't have any kind of strength at all. This young man was dying in the street. He wasn't, he was barely breathing, yet they still decided to give him 500 milligrams of ketamine. And, and, and then what, what happened after that? So after he was given ketamine, um, he went into cardiac arrest. He was placed on a gurney. He went into cardiac arrest. They claimed that they tried to revive him in the ambulance. Um, and three, and so he was transported to the, to the hospital. And the hospital was less than a mile away. But for some reason, it took them 45 minutes to get him from where he was at to the hospital. Um, and he ultimately went into cardiac arrest, and then he went brain dead and was taken off of life support three days later. Oh, wow. How's the family dealing with this? And first, you know, because that's just horrible to lose lose a child like that, even though it's a young man who's in his early 20s. So how are they dealing with it? You know, I don't, um, I'm not sure that there really is an answer for how you deal with it, um, because it's, it's, it's unnatural order, right? A mother is not supposed to bury her son. So I think that um, the, the healing process is very, very intensive for this family. And they are, we are in the midst of still waiting for the sentencing of the paramedics who actually were sentenced or were convicted um, as being culpable in his murder. So right now we're in a phase of waiting to see how the legal system is going to play out. So I think that that's where they're, their healing process is stalled until all of this is done, right? Once they're on the other side of this, they can really truly go into the roots of the soil of the pain and start to really talk about how you heal in that space. And his mother, Shanine McLean, she is in the process of trying to identify where does she go in this season of life? What is going to be her next step? What is she going to lean into to ensure that her son's legacy is protected, it's honored, and it's memorialized, and what does it look like for her to find her space of action, to find her space of how she contributes to this timeline of what we as a community and as a people can do to start to see different results and different outcomes. Yeah, 28 after the top of the hour. Now, how did you uh, guys get all this information? Because it seems like it's very detailed about what happened, his first encounter with the police, and then and then with, with uh, paramedics. How did you get all this information? Because usually it was stuff like this, you know, they'll try to hide it. And they did. They did try to suppress it. So in 2019, when, um, when the district attorney's office reviewed the case, they said no charges were going to be filed. 
Um, in 2020, the governor actually appointed the attorney general as a special prosecutor, of which that's when they came up with 32 indictments from a grand jury. So there were three trials that were available and afforded to the public. And so now when, when trials happen, now we're talking about body cam footage being displayed in a very intentional way. You're getting all of the details. You're listening to those that were involved in the autopsy. You're listening to interviews of the paramedics that were interviewed by the police back in 2019. So there was a lot of detail that was afforded and available for us as a community and the family to have access to. So the truth has been something that has really been um, accessible. And so I think that that's the reason why we are able to lay out specifically what happened to Elijah, how he died, and everyone that was involved in that. So there's a lot of information. And this is a very, very scary situation because, I mean, we're talking about details that go into the weeds of when Elijah was at the hospital, he was checked in as a John Doe. However, his body was bubble wrapped because they knew that they were going to take his organs. And you're not supposed to do that when someone goes into um, the hospital as a John Doe. And so there's, again, there's so many intricate details that I, I could I could take your whole narrative of the show, and I don't want to do that. I can take up the whole time feeding you the details, but it's it's a really, really, really scary story of what is happening in this timeline. Yeah, thirty minutes after time there, but let's talk a little bit about the, his organs. Were, was it were they harvested? Did they take his organs? Because we hear this a lot from 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 uh, black funeral home directors. We've got a brother, uh, Muhammad the Mortician, who's in New Jersey. I think in Jersey City or Newark. And every time we get we schedule to come on, there's another emergency coming on with, with our young people. And he says, I try to tell these people, I have to tell their mothers when I'm preparing them that certain organs are missing. And, and, you know, but they're, they're in such a state of dis, despair because of what happened to their child that they, they sort of, you know, they don't deal with it right away. So tell us again, it was did that happen or was it a possibility? So he was an organ donor. Um, and so Eliza's organs were were taken. Um, but when he was at the hospital as a John Doe, they didn't have his name. They didn't have his name. They weren't able to, you know, to affirm that. And so for them to already prep his body for that for that procedure, that is another piece of trying to identify that there are some mysteries that are in this space that we haven't been able to get answers to. So it's that there was there was a lot of the behavior of from the time that he was apprehended to the time that he was taken off of, of life support. There was a lot of questions that that still remain. Even the presence of the police at the hospital after he had been admitted to the hospital, there were a lot of questions that we just simply have not been able to get answers to. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of drilling down on, on the organ harvesting, if you will, because of the, the same conversation we had with Mohammed the Mortician. I think Dick Gregory was with us, and Dick Gregory mentioned that people who put their organ donor on their driver's license, they have to be careful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you, you get right. in an accident, they'll come and start snatching your organs without asking whether they're trying to revive you. So I just, just want to, I'm glad you mentioned that. I gave him a chance to, to remind folks to be careful about that. Just be mindful of that may happen. So now we have that the, there's going to be sentencing for the paramedics or what about the police the police are they off on this so there were three officers that were um on trial of which two of the officers have been acquitted so one of the officers um his name is jason rosenblatt he's the one that put elijah in a carotid hold the second time he was acquitted of all charges the 
other officer that was acquitted, his name is Nathan Woodyard. He was the one that was first on the scene. He was the one that was first on the scene and first to put hands on Elijah. He was acquitted. Jason Rosenblatt was fired from the Aurora Police Department in the midst of these cases being created because there were multiple officers that went back to the scene where Elijah was murdered, and they mocked his murder. They, they took photos and sent jokes, racist jokes about um, Elijah, and they were pretending as if they were putting each other in the carotid hold. And those, those pictures were sent across, uh, across officers in the department, and Jason Rosenblatt was one of those officers that received the photo, and his response to that text string was, ha-ha. So he and a few other officers were fired because of that behavior. So he was acquitted, but he was fired from the police department before the trial, so he's no longer um, a police officer. Nathan Woodyard being acquitted, he hadn't been fired. He was on suspension, so after he was acquitted— he got an opportunity to get his job back. He was paid over $240,000 in back pay, and he went into a reintegration process to where he could be a part of the Aurora Police Department again. He has since declined being becoming an Aurora Police Department Aurora Police Officer, and he was awarded an additional $217,000 because of that decision. So ultimately, he's acquitted of all charges. And he gets about four hundred, over four hundred thousand dollars in back pay and in severance. Right, and that's the last all money. Officer, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The last officer, Randy Rodima, he actually was convicted or convicted of criminally negligent homicide. He has been sentenced. He was sentenced in January to fourteen months in the county jail, but he gets work release. So the job that he does have, he's not a police officer. He gets to go to work every day. But he has to come back to jail every night and spend the weekends in jail for 14 months. All right, hold so up though right there. We we gotta take a quick break, uh, uh, Midian. We gotta take a quick break, and when we come back, I finish because one question I want to ask you: If these officers are allowed to get back on the force, not necessarily in Aurora, but they could be some some other police department they're working for right now. I want to get your thoughts on that, family. You want to join this conversation? So see some folks already have. Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. W-O-L, or information is power. And good morning once again, family. Twin minutes away from the top of the hour with the Medea Holmes. She's an activist in Aurora, Colorado, and uh, she's also a friend of the family. We're talking about Elisha McCain and his death, and you heard what happened to him. And now we're, and also we got to be uh, mindful of uh, paramedics, EMT folks, you know, playing with our lives. And because you know what the police did and the EMT, and the, of course there was some cover-up. Uh, between those two groups. But anyway, before we go back to her, and we got some folks want to talk to her, let me just remind you, uh, we're going to do a special for uh, Joe Madison, a tribute to Joe Madison coming up. Joe, one of our colleagues, made his transition uh, last week. And also later this morning, you're going to hear from Professor Manu Ampin from Contra Costa College out in California. Professor Ampin is, is going to discuss the, uh, Dr. Dr. Carter, Dr. Carter G. Woodson's work on the African history, or as he calls it, uh, African Heritage Month. Most of us call it African History Month. He calls it African Heritage Month. And later this week, we're going to talk about the African history 
with one of our civil rights actors from back in the 60s. I'm talking about Willie Ricks, William Mumukasa, Dada Ricks, if you will. Uh, he marched along with, with Dr. King, uh, uh, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, John Lewis, and um, Marion Barry, who helped form the, the SNCC organization. He's going to be here with us and fill us in what happened during those days. Also, we're going to look at the influence of, of music, black music, that for that matter. In the civil rights movement, through with musicologist Bill Carpenter, and also uh, a black politics expert James Taylor is going to be with us, Dr. Taylor from the University of San Francisco. Uh, and also, oh, Dick Gregory's son, youngest son, Johansson, is going to talk about Greg and his role in the civil rights movement. And uh, who else is going to be with us? Oh, well, also, we're going to look at Black Wall Street. What happened to Black Wall Street with Tulsa native uh, Karen Carrington? So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, as I mentioned, some folks want to talk to you. Lawrence is up first. He's calling from Texas. He's in the Metroplex area there, Arlington, Dallas. He's on line one. Good morning, Lawrence. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, my sister. Hey, Carl. Good morning. I, I am uh, I am highly offended and pissed off every time I hear about something done about one of our brothers or sisters being done dirty. It pisses me off to the extent, and I'll be wondering, do other black people feel like me? Do they see what I see? Do they hear what I hear? Or are they in denial or just stuck on stupid? I'm saying that to say this. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. There are so many instances across the country where black people, young and old, are abused, rights are violated, and even murdered. But with that being said, we got leaders, black leaders, who want us to be concerned about the plight of other ethnic groups. We got church leaders wanting us to be concerned about the plight of other groups. If that boy was a homosexual, people would have been in jail. If that boy would have been an illegal alien, people would have been in jail. Why is it? that black people advocate, and I ain't talking about all black people because people down here on the ground with me in the trenches, we feeling it. We don't feel that, we feel like nobody gives a hoot about us and our plight. But here's the catch, sister. I'm a middle class, middle class black man. My wife is middle class. We come from Flint, Michigan. I'm a product of affirmative action. I'm 66 years old, and I grew up with black people protecting me. I grew up with black people fighting for our black women. I grew up with black people not being scared of white folks. And I grew up with black folks who didn't promote the gay agenda. We've always had gays in our community, and we didn't hate on them. Our gays were gays, but they were black people first. They fought for the black agenda. What they did in their personal life was their business, and we didn't hate on the gays in our community. Now, you don't hear gay people advocating for black people. You hear them advocating for gay people. I mean, every reality has been twisted and turned around. I want to know why you All right. and other people— Put in a question for him, Lawrence, please. 
Here's the question. I want to know why black people with a platform, whether you're a lawyer or a politician, why you're sitting on the sideline not raising hell about the plight of black Americans. We still need help. We need help more than any time. You, the, right. the Hispanics ain't advocating for us. All right, let, let's give her a chance to respond, uh, Lawrence, and, and let's make it specific to Elijah's case here. Uh, Hamidian, did did you hear any? Did you get a response from the Urban League, the NAACP, uh, Black Lawyers, mm. uh, did, uh, the church, the clergy? Did you get a response for any support? Did the family receive any? Yes, I would say yes, absolutely. There have been, um, you know, several Black-led and Black-impacting organizations that have been. Um, right in line with the way in which we were able to organize protests. We were able to lean into ensuring that we, we had a presence for the family and we took the lead of the family, right, as it pertains to the way that things were organized. And I think to the question, what I will say is that, bro, I, I understand, I feel you, I get it, because oftentimes there, we, are, we are seeing movements that happen and protecting the black narrative has been part of the issue, right? We are a collective community. So we show up for those that are in other spaces. We'll show up for the Hispanic community. We'll show up for a lot of different communities, but when it's time to protect the narrative and say that this happened to a black child, or this happened to a black family, or this happened to a black young man, all of a sudden we don't see that same energy to protect the narrative. There's a lot of folks that will say, well, if you, don't say black, then we'll show up. If you say protected class, or if you say, you know, like, again, black lives matter quickly change the all lives matter. So protecting the black narrative has been a constant issue in this country in particular. So we do have to stand firm and say that we are going to tell this story. It is our story. We are going to protect the narrative. Elijah McClain was a black man, period. And so with that, when this story is told and when we show up, we should all be showing up under that narrative. And for those that don't identify the same way, that's an invitation for you to show up for a black man or a black family, a black mother. And we should all be ready and okay with that. So I think that we do have to hold the tension of not being willing to protect the narrative when it's our story that's being told. And speaking about being told, Aurora, what's, what percentage of, of that city it's black, or, or I guess Denver's close by. So, what percentage would you say is black? So, it's about four percent in the state of Colorado of black demographic. We are four percent of Colorado. And, and having said that, did you, did you receive any support from the other groups who, who are not black in Colorado? Because obviously, this is a fight. If you're in Colorado for black folks, you can't win alone. So, did you receive any of? Did, were they supportive of what what you're doing uh, to help uh, Elijah? So I would say that it was right in the midst of the reckoning of the, the the reckoning that all of us went through of 2020. So there were a lot of people that were showing up for George Floyd. But interestingly enough, in our own state, in our own city, not a lot of people knew Elijah McClain's story. There wasn't a public outcry for Elijah McClain specifically, but a lot of people, because of the George Floyd protesting that happened, they learned about Elijah McClain's story. Our media outlets didn't give us the story the way that they do for other other narratives, right? So there were there was a lot of dis, disinformation, misinformation, and lack of awareness about Elijah during at the time that he was murdered. And then when the reckoning happened in 2020 and everyone was showing up for George Floyd protests, 
they were learning for the first time the story of Elijah. Yeah, unfortunately, that, uh, that, that or the whole narrative about what happened to George Floyd is um, what the response, that guilt that white America felt has gone away. You know, all of a sudden, right after it happened, because, you know, we've been saying this, this is how they treat us, and they ignored it till they saw it for themselves. And they were all beneficent. They were giving us things, you know, giving the, or donating money to these causes and scholarships in the name of George Floyd. They, they, their conscience was pricked. But all of that has gone away now. We don't feel that same way anymore. You know, we we got yeah. the rise of the Trumpsters. And if I'm wrong, family, just call me up and correct me. I, I appreciate being corrected. But anyway, we're 10 minutes away from the top here. I'm hitting, and, and Tyrone is calling us from Baltimore. Good morning, Tyrone. Tyrone's online too, by the way. Yes, good morning. I called out and thank you again for the platform. Um, the other side of that coin, and this is very appropriate for this conversation, is what happens to some of these prosecutors that stand up for the black community. And uh, Marilyn Mosby is on trial basically for her life because she's facing up to 40 years in prison for all these charges. Now, people need to understand that. They put her in jail for four years. And uh, this is not a joke. They're not playing with her. And it's punishment. It's retaliation. Everybody knows that. Because And how many of us have enough guts to stand up to the FOP? Because she prosecuted more cops than just a Freddie Gray story. She prosecuted a lot of dirty cops. We had cops in Baltimore. Not all police are bad, let me say that. But we had police in Baltimore that were selling drugs, that were committing robberies and burglaries and all kinds of malfeasance. We're working with inclusive drug gangs. And uh, she wasn't having it. And she was going to have them brutalizing our community. So I think that we should all stand up. Right now, I'm headed down to... Uh, the uh, the church, uh, uh, I'm headed down to uh, 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 the church located on 2100. It's called New Shalom Baptist Church, I'm sorry. It's located at 2100 North Monroe Street, Baltimore, Maryland. And we're going to be leaving about 830. Um, I just rented a 15-seat van. Um, you know, we're going to make sure our seniors get there. And if they don't have a ride, you come there. Or if you want to you ride with the bus, fine. But first, we're going to fill those buses up with people that don't have rides. And uh, if you if you want to ride there yourself, the address is 6500 Cherrywood Lane, Greenbelt, Maryland, 20770. That's 6500 Cherrywood Lane, Greenbelt, Maryland, 20770. If you want to drive yourself and bring a friend if you're going to be there. We need to show out for this lady because she is not being tried. They don't care about no mortgage documents. Nobody gets tried for that stuff. And if they do get go, go to court for it, it'd be civil court. So... Let's make sure that, you know, that we understand that this is about Freddie Gray uh, prosecuting those cops and the FOP who has connections throughout the system seeking vengeance, not justice, vengeance. Thank you for your time. All right, before we go real quickly again, Tyrone, how can folks, if they want to go, if they live in the Baltimore area, how can they hook up with you guys this morning? Right now, if you live in Baltimore, the unfortunate thing, uh, Carl, is that the, the, the trial in Greenbelt, and that's closer to D.C., uh, than, than Baltimore, basically. So if you live in if you live in uh, D.C., black people, this is about you too. It's about the system smacking us around, and they expect us not to be united, you know, uh, against injustice against our sister, who lost everything. She spent a, ha- a half a million dollars in legal fees against defending against these fraudulent investigations on her, her entire since Freddie Gray. She's had death threats to her, to herself and her family. And she was under constant harassment by the FOP, okay? So we got to understand that this is total retaliation, and the white power structure supports it. So we need to make sure they understand that we can't 
have unity. And uh, and um, that that's what scares them when they see the unity and that we, they can't just get away with anything. And so I hope people show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and if you got a car, if you have a car, come to uh, Mount Shiloh because you ride with the bus if you want. And if, if we have people that or send you to whatever need to ride, you carpool with them. Right. But um, I thank you for your time, sir. No, thank you for what you're doing, Tyrone. And keep us in the loop of what's going on with Marilyn Mosby. That's a, another aspect of what happens when you try to prosecute rogue police officers. And that's what, that was her thanks. And we got these rogue police officers in Aurora that, that uh, helped, or uh, were on the way to help them, you know, put in uh, uh, Elijah McCain in a chokehold. That started it all for his demise. But we're coming up on a break. When we come back, though, maybe I want you to tell us how can we help you? How can we help the family of, uh, of Elijah McClain? What can we do? listeners. Family, you want to join this discussion, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. Minute at the top of the hour. Thanks for starting your week with us again. Uh, our guest is Midian Holmes. She's a, 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 an ad- advocate, if you will, and a community activist in Aurora, Colorado. This is where uh, Elijah McCain li- uh, lived. It is where he was uh, confronted by the police officers in that city. They put a chokehold on him, and, and that started his demise. And then the paramedics came when, when he w- was... Uh, basically unconscious, and then gave him an overdose of chemotine, which led to his demise. And so uh, she's going to tell us how we can help, what we can do, because basically these police officers, these rogue police officers got off. They may be in, uh, probably still in Aurora or maybe on some other police department now, and we, we have to deal with them. Before we speak with Professor Ampin, though, uh, uh, Sister Fahima in Washington, D.C., has a comment for you or a question, Medium. Good morning, Sister Fahima. She's online, too, Kevin. Good morning. Can you guys hear me, Mr. Nelson? Yes, ma'am. Yes, thank you for taking my call, Mr. Nelson, and greetings to your guests. You know, I remember this case. Um, one of the things the system may have forgotten to mention, that Elijah McCain was a violinist. And I remember that in New York City, because um, this was in the midst of COVID, um, what, you know, there was a, 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 a service outdoors with musicians playing the violin um, you know, in support of Elijah McCain, because he was, he was, a, from what I see, he was a person on the spectrum, and he was such a beautiful human being, and I was touched, you know, by what happened uh, to him, and during the midst of the trial, um, you know, I think last year, one of my students, because uh, I have them present on different stories, they chose this story, um, and, and the thing is, is that Elijah McCain, you know, from what I could see listening to the recording and hearing about him, he was such a beautiful spirit, a selfless person, and he taught himself how to play the violin. And I understand he used to go to um, the animal shelter and play the violin to the animals that were there. He was such a beautiful, selfless person. And, um, you know, this was just an injustice. All right. Thank you, uh, Sister Fahima. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to respond to what, anything she said? Yeah, I mean, I just want to affirm, absolutely, he was a self-taught violinist. And um, again, he was always in pursuit of healing 
And um, he did that through the music that he played. One thing that I do want to make sure that I say, though, is that he was not on the spectrum. You know, there was there was some talk that um, that uh, that Elijah may have been um, that way. And I just want to make sure that everybody's aware that he was not um, autistic or that he wasn't diagnosed to be on the spectrum. But beautiful soul. Absolutely. And thank you so much this for the teaching that you're doing. And it's so meaningful that your students chose this story to lean into, because if we continue to tell his story, his legacy continues to live on. So how can we help you now? Because the uh, the paramedics are going on trial. Is that it? The police officers, they finished with the cops, the rogue police officers who started all this. Now they're dealing with the paramedics. What, what can we do? Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Yeah, so the paramedics trial also is, uh, is completed. So um, both of them were convicted with criminally negligent homicide, one of them was convicted also of second-degree assault, um, the unlawful administration of a drug. So both of those paramedics will be sentenced on March 1st. <laughs> Excuse me. And they will be um, – the sentencing will take place then. So one of the ways that you can help, um, we are simply just asking for people to write letters to the judge asking to ensure that um, they're, they are convicted to the letter of the law. And so if there's a way that they can get the maximum sentence in both charges, that would be a huge help. Um, we did not see the maximum sentence in the officer that was convicted. Two, op two officers were acquitted, but the one officer that was convicted, we did not see maximum sentencing. So you can do that by writing to the, Ad the Adams County Court, and that's A-D-A-M-S, so the Adams County Court, and the address is 1100 which is 1100 Judicial Center Drive. And that is courtroom 402. And that's out of Brighton, Colorado. Brighton is spelled B-R-I-G-H-T-O-N. Brighton, Colorado. And the zip code is 80601. So there is a Letters for Elijah campaign that is happening, and we are working as hard as we can to flood the judge. It's Judge Mark Werner. His last name is spelled W-E-R-N-E-R. -E -E and we're asking for people to simply just send a letter. Um, it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be a long letter. It doesn't have to have the prowess of words or legalities. Just send a letter from your heart asking for maximum sentencing. And I think that if Judge Werner sees these letters coming from across the country, he will understand that there are eyes on him and his responsibility. This, there's justice that we are pursuing, and he, we need to make sure that he's aware that there are eyes watching. Of course. Is there an email address where people can get more information? Because, you know, people are on their way to work and driving and probably didn't get a chance to write down the information. Is there an email address they can reach yes. you? Yes, absolutely. The easiest way to reach me, um, just for the folks that are that are driving, um, just send an email to info at be the epitome, just like it said, B-E-T-H-E-E-P-I-T-O-M-E. -E -E -E. So info at be the epitome dot org. 
that's the best way to reach me. And I'm happy to provide any information that I can happy to lean in, to listen to folks, to have conversation. So feel free to reach out and I'm happy to be a resource. All righty. Thank you. And thank you for the work and keeping this fight alive because, you know, a lot of times somehow we, we, these things happen. And we, I guess we're just so complacent because we know it's going to happen and we know it happens. And we also know what the result's going to be. And then when it happens, you know, it's all forgotten. And this is why I mentioned that Trayvon, his birthday's weekend, his mom is doing something for him down in Miami. Also Emmett Till and, and Tamir Rice. These names should not be ever, ever forgotten. So I just want to thank okay. you for putting Elijah McCain's name in with that group as well. Thank you for the work that you're doing, Medium. Mr. Nelson, thank you so much for continuing to curate spaces and conversations. We appreciate you. We need you. We hear you. We love you. Thank you so much. And thank you for the work that you do. Seven minutes after the top there. Before we go to Professor MP, Money Mike is in in Baltimore uh, on line one. Money Mike, good morning. Good morning, Carl. Can you hear me? Sure. Look, I want to say something. Um, To Tyrone, if you're listening, I have $500 for you, bro. Uh, Just go through Jason or go through Sean, and I'm a supporter of of Marilyn Mosby, and I appreciate you buying the van. But if you've already got money for the van, I want you to have box lunches for the seniors and soda and juice and however you can spend the $500. Just go through Sean or uh, Jason at WOL, they know how to reach me. And uh, call somebody has to be behind the scenes. You know, when, when Martin Luther King was out doing his thing, it was a guy out of North Carolina who owned funeral homes. And I read his, his, his book, and he talked about how he supported Martin Luther King. So this is my way of giving back to a good cause. And uh, I got to do something for Marilyn Mosby, the state's prosecutor. So, um and I thank you for these air, airways in this platform, Carl, because without you getting the word out, I wouldn't know about it. I, I, you know, nobody else is talking about it but you. So I want to give kudos to you and uh, to Tyrone. But, but Mike, let, let me just say this real quick, because what you're doing is, is just great. It's just awesome. What, what Marilyn Mosby did after the Freddie Gray incident and tried to prosecute those, those police officers, this is, all this is just retaliation, as you know. She's in court now on criminal charges. There should be in a civ- uh, civil charges. So what they're doing is, is they're trying to silence her and silence us uh, as well. And this is where you came in and said you go to donate and help Tyrone and the rest of the brothers in Baltimore stand up for her because that's what we need to see. When she goes to court in the courtroom and looks around, she'll see familiar faces and a lot of black faces in that courtroom. And so not just for her sake, but too, also the judge is going to you know, give her the sentencing and then all the people who are involved in, in this trial to know that she's got some people who support her. So I want to thank you for what you're doing. Man, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm going to get off these airways. And, uh, man, thank you for bringing us this show and all of the valuable information that I hear from you and nobody else. So thank you, man. And, uh, you know, you know the coach. So if you, if you need something, if you know of a cause, run it through the coach, and he'll get the word to me, Carl. All righty. Will do. Thanks, Mike. All right. All righty. Nine yeah. minutes after the top of the hour. This is what we do, folks, on this program. Let's turn our attention now to Contra Costa College professor, Manu Ampim. Professor Ampim, good morning. Hotep, welcome back to the program. Good morning, Hotep, brother Carl. Glad to be back. Yeah, we're going to talk about, because this is Black History Month, uh, uh, Dr. Carter G. Woodson, uh, you know, African Heritage Month. And but but most people used you call it African Heritage Month, but most people call it Black History Month. Why the difference, or is there a difference? Uh, I think there's a difference because um, um, 
in, on the one in the one sense we're talking about the same time period of February, but on another sense, when I started to really look at the great Carter G. Woodson, who's the man who's the reason for the season of why we're putting more focus on uh, the black contributions, achievements, and uh, accomplishments in this particular time of the year, Woodson focused much of his uh, his scholarship and much of his focus on Africa. And what I notice is that people uh, mean well, but they moved away from the original vision of uh, Dr. Carter G. Woodson. And Africa has been at the center of his focus. So I call it African Heritage Month because that's exactly what it is. When Woodson is talking about the uh, U.S. history and world history where there were missing pages, chapters, and volumes that black people have contributed to the U.S. and the world, it's not the world as a general concept. It, at the center of that world achievement is Africa. So African Heritage Month clearly centers the uh, original focus of the man who's the reason for the season. And so uh, a lot of times that has nothing to do with the celebrations, and it's a problem. In fact, it's not always a celebration. You know, as, as we were just listening to, obviously black people have unique challenges here in the U.S., and there are challenges and problems. But Woodson said that in February it can't not just be a focus on problems because black people are not always a problem. We have to look at the achievements, the, 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 the accomplishments, the contributions, and he centered Africa as a place to look for those uh, world foundations. So African Heritage Month clearly alerts us and indicates to us that that should be our focus, what we've contributed to the world, the great foundations. So he didn't leave out the U.S., but he certainly uh, didn't leave Africa out either. And Africa, is it permeates the work of the great historian and the great scholar Carter G. Woodson. So it's to remind us that uh, let's put Africa back in its rightful place, as did the founder himself. All right. We'll come up a break real soon. But let me ask you this question. Why did he pick February? You know, people ask that question all the time. They say he picked it because it was the shortest month or some other reason. But you've done the research. So maybe you can help us out. Why did Carter G. Woodson pick this particular month for Black History Month or African Heritage Month, as you say? Yeah, great question. I, I know a lot of uh, young people, and you, and, and you pretty much have a conscientious audience, but still we have to make sure people know all the details. He picked the second week in February because uh, at the time back in I'll tell you, Hold that thought right there. So I'm looking at the clock. we got to take a short break here. I don't want to break your rhythm because this is important because it's kicked around a bit. And, then, and you know, even our comedians make fun of it, Black History Month being the shortest month of the, of the year. But you're going to explain to us because you've done the research and why Carter G. Woodson actually selected. February as Black History Month or African Heritage Month, if you will. Family, you want to join our conversation with Professor Ampin? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Class is in session right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour, one of our top scholars with us this morning. So call up a couple of friends and tell them, Professor Manu Ampin is on the radio discussing Black History Month or African Heritage Month, as he says which it should be the, the term should be. And before we left for the short break, we were asking Professor Ampin to explain why Carter G. Woodson selected February as African History Month. Yes, sir. 
Now, Dr. Woodson chose the second week in February because um, that week is the birthday of Abraham Lincoln on February 12th, and people assume that Frederick Douglass's birthday was the 14th of February. I don't know how anybody could determine that because Douglass himself did not know when he was born. Uh, he didn't know the year, and he certainly didn't know the day, per se, because of the vicious institution of slavery. In fact, Douglas didn't even know who his father was. He suspected it was the, the, the vicious white slave owner that had abused his mother. Uh, that was the speculation. But nevertheless, he decided the second week because people, because black people were already celebrating these two men at the time, and Woodson felt that it was best to go with the flow and not create something entirely different, but to direct people away from the focus of individuals and instead lift up the contributions of the race in general, black people in general. So that's why he chose the second week in February. And to people who argue, as you say, comedians and other people who don't know that they gave us the shortest month in the year, who was they? Ain't no they uh, gave Woodson or black people anything. Woodson took it. He took it and put that on the map, even in the midst of the heyday of lynching. The 1920s, that's the heyday where white nationalists were, 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 were going buck wild with lynching black people for, uh, for basically nothing. And so we can look at modern-day lynching, but that's not even in the same level of the volume of what we saw in the 1920s. So that's why Woodson chose that time, but he criticized or he— folks that didn't understand what the focus should be. He, he said it should not be focused on celebrating and highlighting individuals. It was more important to focus on the contributions of the race of black people in general. So that's one thing that he focused on. He also focused on the fact that there cannot be and should never be a, a focus just on problems, just so on uh, the challenges that black people had because we had to assert our humanity. What have we done in the world? What have we achieved in the world? What have we accomplished in the world? So for Woodson, this was very important. At the time, he was very concerned that if we did not assert the humanity of black people, that we would be exterminated by white nationalists and white races running around the country because they didn't see our worth. And other people may have been, quote-unquote, neutral, did not see the worth of black people. So for Woodson, the focus on what we've achieved in the world was one of the most central concerns as he created this this holiday, uh, this focus, I should say, in the second week of February. And let's also be clear that Woodson said that this was to compensate for black people being left out of U.S. and world history, but it wasn't only a week for him. In the future, it had to be a black history year. And now today I would call it an African history whole year and beyond. But the week was just to start off because of the fact that this was a new concept and a new idea led by the great pioneer himself. So we should always make sure we clarify that nobody gave black people any, anything. It was the great Woodson that took the time and made people respect the fact that black people were, were great contributors to the world. And how did he celebrate African History Month or Black History Month, African Heritage Month. What did he do? How did he envision that we should celebrate it as well? Wow. Wow. What a question, Brother Carl. What a question. Because uh, in all due respect, 99% of the people are not following what Woodson did during his day and what Woodson criticized. One, he said it has to be a, a focus away from individuals. Two, that it cannot be a focus on negativity. 
who got beat up, who got uh, a problem and a challenge. But for Woodson, the celebration should be focused on what the community, what the people, what the children, what the parents, what the community learned all year. So for him, the preparation starts in February of what the community, the people, the students would be presenting in February. And February was a time for everybody to present what they had learned during the year. So he criticized, and this is what will surprise people, Woodson criticized and actually condemned folks bringing in big-name popular speakers. He called them spellbinders. He criticized them. He said these people, the best that they are good at, at exploiting the race. Yes, he's saying that by 1941 because Woodson had seen the celebration in his estimation, go sideways, where these uh, spellbinders would come in, and he said, exploit the race. Woodson said that these people did not have a lot of talent. They didn't know much about the history. He said the the average person know, knew more than them, but they were very good uh, uh, at exploiting. And he also said that one of the best traits of these outside spellbinders, these big-name people coming in to speak, is that they had good bellows or good lungs. They can talk a whole a whole lot. And his criticisms were stunning then, and they're illuminating now because how many folks who embrace February actually follow the position and the vision of the founder himself by focusing on what people learn. And what Woodson did to educate and teach the community is that not only did they have the journal, it was a monthly, a quarterly journal that came out, the journal of, uh, then it was called Journal of Negro History, a scholarly, profound publication, but he also founded the, the, a bulletin. And the so-called Negro History Bulletin at that time, that was to teach the teachers, to give them lesson plans, and to make sure that they could teach the children so that they had, and in fact, they just sold the kit, they had a even a kit to sell to the to the schools that people couldn't afford it in the home. The school could pay a dollar fifty. They could pay a dollar fifty and have lesson plans, posters, uh, plays, all kind of things. And Woodson took it even further to make sure that the community was educated. Not only those publications, but he even had a home study course. So if you couldn't go to school or whatever, no problem. Woodson had a home study course, and it had some rigor. It wasn't just study and do what you want at home, but it actually had academic rigor, and this was for the average person. <clears throat> so there's no aspect of learning that Woodson did not tackle to try to make sure that the community itself was educated and was not dependent on big-name speakers to come in and, as he say, exploit the race. But this is what he was doing during his day, and we see his presentations and in articles, and uh, this is what his concern was, as he saw his own uh, focus in February go sideways, and this is why by 1941 he had both both guns ablazing against the community itself that didn't understand what would help, as he said, lift the race and, and help black people to move forward. I got to ask you this at 30 minutes after the top of the hour. Did he get any pushback? Did he get any pushback from people who look like us and people who don't look like us? He definitely did. <laughs> he got a lot of pushback, but Woodson was stern. Woodson was a, uh academic. Uh, he was a educational and historical revolutionary, and, and folks don't really know that. He got a lot of pushback because Woodson was unconcerned with what people thought. So he certainly had 
had people that he battled, but he had so many that supported Woodson. Even in his office, the now it's called the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, or OSLA. Then it was the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. When they when Woodson left the office, people would goof off and not really be efficient. But when he came back, everything was. Uh, was uh, to be on point, and he criticized people if they weren't efficient and weren't productive enough. So Woodson had challenges inside. He had uh, opponents in the country, but he also had great allies, like the like the great Marcus Garvey when Garvey was around. Um, and what Woodson did is pull together a a community of scholars that were dependent on and associated with Woodson because they understood the great project that the journal represented, which was to give insight about black achievements and accomplishments and contributions in the U.S. and the world. So this is what gained him a lot of supporters. One thing the audience would not necessarily know much of is that we know about the great book, The Miseducation of the Negro, that he wrote in 1933, but Woodson had wrote a book earlier that he called The Case of the Negro. Now, his organization renamed it Woodson's Appeal. I don't know why they did that. There was no reason to rename the book. Just let it stand as it was. You don't have to rename anything, but Woodson wrote the book in 1921, but he never published it, because if people think that the miseducation was a stunning indictment of the American educational system, which which damaged the intelligence of black children and then elevated the confidence of white children in the same lesson plans, Woodson went further than that. The case of a Negro was more stunning, and it was an indictment of white nationalists, white supremacy, and the vicious American system even beyond the school system. But Woodson never published the case of the Negro because he knew that if he published that book, he can pretty much forget about any funds coming in to support his organization. So nobody knew that he wrote that book until maybe a decade ago. You know, maybe 10 years ago, the book finally came to surface, and then it was published by his organization, and they renamed it the title. But originally, it was called The Case of a Negro. He didn't publish it because he knew he would have less and less, if any, real financial support to keep the organization moving forward. So what was that book about, though? So why was he so concerned about that? Well, he was concerned that if you come out on that level, <laughs> then even the white folks would uh, would back away from financial uh, support of the organization. So it seems as though that was Woodson's and, and any other philanthropist, that they just would have said, nah, we don't think we're going to do that. And so that seems to be the only reason why Woodson didn't publish it, because of uh, the funds would have would have dried out. And, and uh it's about strategy. Somebody can criticize that, but they also should know that if we look at, at Booker T. Washington, for example, they can call him Uncle Tom uh, and all of this. But after his 1890, uh, his 1895 Atlantic Compromise speech, where he really compromised and said that, you know, black people should not really worry about the white nationalists and, and, and their vicious system that cast down your bucket where you are because you're on a boat but there's water all around you. Just cast down your bucket and the boat or the resources are there. So because there was a compromise, he didn't join the activists against the uh, the vicious system in America against black people. Uh, so the white philanthropists supported Booker T. Washington. Like Andrew Carnegie, for example, gave 
$600,000 to the Tuskegee Institute for Booker T. Washington to keep this uh, this this uh, low profile and not criticize white people. But what folks didn't know when they criticized Booker T. Washington, called him an Uncle Tom, what they did not know is Booker T. Washington was secretly taking the money from these philanthropists and secretly funneling it to those that were fighting against lynching. They didn't know that. So, so until later, now we know that that was just a strategy. He said nothing publicly, really, but privately took the money from the from the traducers and gave it to black people that were fighting against the vicious system of lynching. So Woodson just took that as a strategy. But if you see, he doesn't compromise anything. In fact, Woodson had a publishing uh, a publishing uh, press. So Associated Press was created by Woodson within the context of his organization so he can publish his books on Africa. He published several books on Africa, which gets ignored, and that they can publish the journal and publish the bulletin because Carter G. Woodson said publishing the truth is self-defense. And, right. for and him, hold that thought right there, Professor Ampere, and we've got to take another quick break, and I'll let you finish talking about the publishing. Also, I want to talk about uh, Carter G. Woodson's relationship with Agarvey, with the Book of Washington. What was their relationship with, with those movers and shakers of, of that time? Family, you want to join this conversation with our guest, Professor Manu Ampere, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. W. OL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. Thanks for rolling with us this morning. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour with Professor Manu and Penn from Contra Costa College out in California uh, discussing African Heritage Month or Black History Month, if you will. He's giving us some background of Carter G. Woodson and how we came to, uh, to start this Black History Month that we're enjoying today. So I want to remind you, we're going to do a special uh, tribute, actually, for Joe Madison, our colleague who left us last week. Coming up, we'll let you know all the information about that shortly. Also, uh, joining us later this week, uh, civil rights activist Willie Makasa Dada Ricks. And Willie Ricks, and marched with Dr. King, uh, Kwame Ture. He's also part of SNCC with, with uh, Mayor for Life, Marion Barry, and and, and John Lewis, those are the folks he hung with, and he's still with us, so he's going to give us his, uh, a story of what happened back in those times. Also, we're going to look at the influence of black music on the civil rights movement with musicologist Bill Carmody is going to join us. Also, uh, black politics expert Dr. James Taylor out of the University of San Francisco will be here. Dick Gregory's youngest son, Johansi, will be here talking about Greg's work in the civil rights field. And also, we're going to take a look at Black Wall Street through the eyes of uh, Tulsa native Karen Carrington. So if you are in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010. WLB. If you're in the DMV, you're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, uh, uh, Professor Ampim, I'm going to go back to you and, and again and tell us about the pushback that he received at uh, Carter G. Woodson. And, and the part that I know you want to focus on, the fact that where we talk about the contributions of, of African Americans or black people in America, Carter G. Woodson also talked about the uh, talked about what happened in Africa before we got here and also his relationship to some of our greats, the Marcus Garvey, the, the Booker Washington. How, how did he deal with the folks of his time, his, his contemporaries? Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Uh, well, you know, one thing that's great about 
what was great about Woodson's work is he incorporated those that were genuine, genuinely working on behalf of the race. He criticized, on the other hand, those people that had become famous because of white men promoting them. And Woodson was upfront about that, that these people are not spokesmen just because white men made them famous. But he praised, on the other hand, Marcus Garvey. And uh, Carter G. Woodson said whatever mistakes Garvey may have made, uh, then that does not overshadow, uh, overshadow the fact that he was a legitimate leader of black people. And that, uh, so he, he, he promoted Garvey, he defended Garvey, and vice versa. So not only does he do that in his writings and in the journal, but Garvey, in his publication, which was the most distributed of all of the publications, The Negro World, there was frequent and favorable commentary on Woodson and the association that he founded. There was always support for and admiration on both sides. But Garvey clearly elevated the work of, uh, of Woodson, and uh, so that should be known. In fact, folks certainly know about Arthur Schomburg, the, the bibliophile, and Schomburg wrote an article called The Negro Digs Up His Past, which was uh, in 1925, and, and, and a, almost 100 years later, that still has a great impact because uh, what Schomburg was able to do was really chronicle the most, some of the most important contributions, and he gave the highest praise to Woodson and his organization, and because of the fact that they were making important contributions. So, for example, Arthur Schomburg praised, as he said, "quote unquote," the important study of African cultural origins and sources. And he said that, that this was corrective history of African achievements and the potentiality of black people. But he said, and, and here's what's amazing as well, the more scientific study of African institutions and early cultural history, which he praised Woodson and his organization for, for bringing forth. So some of the great writers of the day were clearly embracing Woodson, and he and Garvey had mutual respect, and we know that because in both of the publications, they praise each other. So it was the people that, that uh, and of course, Garvey had many enemies, and some of those enemies of the Honorable Marcus Garvey, the greatest organizer of black people in U.S. history, they also had problems with Woodson because both of these men were uncompromising in their vision of what they thought was best for the black for black community moving forward, not just in the U.S. We know Garvey had a, a global vision, but so did Woodson, and that's what gets left out by most of the people who even praise his name. They're not following the full international direction of Woodson that he clearly lays out in the February celebrations, his speeches, and his writings. All right, let's talk about some of those issues that he talked about, because you mentioned he had a global perspective about black folks, like a Garvey, but we just think it's just the U.S. that he was talking about. You said, But you said no. So can you explain that for us? Yeah, for sure. And so, for example, as I mentioned a minute ago, so for Woodson, it, was, it should have been a black history or an African history year, a whole year of focus and celebration. And what, and what Woodson began to do when he wrote his seminal work, The Negro in Our History, that was in 1922, when he wrote that book, that became the standard book that was uh, that had uh, become the go-to text in academia, in schools to learn about black people, and that was the case for decades. People read Woodson's the 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 uh, 
the Negro in our history. And, of course, he starts the early chapter dealing with Africa. And it wasn't until some decades later that that book was uh, was uh, supplanted by by writings of uh, John Hope Franklin. But nevertheless, Woodson continued to learn. So he wrote books like African Myths Together with Proverbs. And in his last two books, one was the African Background Outline. That was in 1936. So Woodson is continuously focused on African civilizations. How does that go unnoticed? How does that get dismissed when it's front and center? The African Background Outline. And his last book was African Heroes and Heroines. So more and more, Woodson's dealing with African civilizations. This was not unknown. It was widely publicized. In fact, his last three articles, the great Carter G. Woodson passed in 1950. The last three articles he wrote was a series that he simply entitled Egypt, a three-part series in 1949 and 1950. So here you have his writings, his focus, in fact, even his organizations, the annual themes focused on Africa during the the days of Woodson. That is all but have been ignored by people who have not continued in the tradition of Woodson. And what I love about Woodson's work, he's not doing it alone. He created a cadre of writers that were also writing about African culture, African civilizations. And, um, and, uh, and this was very prominent. It was very widespread. But today, now, people have moved more and more away from Woodson's focus on African achievements. He's focusing on, on things like iron smelting originating in Africa and high-level civilization originating in Africa. He's writing about this. He's putting focus on this, and that's the view and the vision and the uh, the direction of Woodson year after year, and um, this is all but gone missing. And his organization, unfortunately, Brother Carl, has been a part of the problem. How in the world can somebody write about Carter G. Woodson and then leave out the central part of his focus on Africa? The themes of the early organization that he founded, like in 1928, Civilization, a World Achievement. He's talking about Africa. 1933, Egypt meets era in truth. 1935, the Negro achievements in Africa. 1936, African background outline. These are the national themes for those years. So when he wrote his book on the African background in 1936, that was also the national theme. And so Woodson focused people on Africa, but today you don't find any focus on Africa at all by the organization that has moved away from Woodson's work. So they're not even following the founder of their organization, unfortunately. And the evidence is clear. So documentation beats conversation. People can say anything they want, but what do the records tell us? They tell us that Woodson more and more embraced Africa and African contributions, and this has to be brought back to the center because clearly I don't think Woodson would recognize what's happening in February these days on the 98th annual celebration than what he created back in 1926. All right, I got these questions for you 10 minutes away from the top of the hour, uh, Professor Ampim. First, I want you to tell us about the Negro achievements in Africa. But why uh, uh, Carter G. Woodson, the people who have in charge of his legacy, why have they refused to talk about his connection to, to the continent? <laughs> That's uh, what I, I think is an excellent question. I asked that question, and there's only one answer. They are uncomfortable with Africa. 
So there, it's not that it's hard to understand or find Woodson's embracement of Africa. It's the people that are in this organization. Let me tell it directly so that the conscientious listeners know the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History have moved away from and contradicts Woodson because they are uncomfortable. Case in point, Woodson made a big issue about being self-published so that there will be no white men editing his work and deciding what would be published and what wasn't published. This is why he said that self-publishing is self-defense, that we're able to publish what we like. And so that was one of the hallmarks of Woodson's contribution as an independent writer and publisher. What happened a few years ago? Well, his organization decided that they would give up associated publishers. And now if you want to get the journal, the contemporary issues or back issues, you have to go through the University of Chicago Press, not through the organization anymore, because they gave up the rights and gave up the independence that Woodson fought so hard for. How can that make any sense other than the fact that those scholars decided that I personally am not comfortable with Africa, so therefore, the hell with the founder's legacy, we're going to do what we want to do. So, it was only a, a couple folks in the inner circles trying to battle against these what I call Afro-Saxons who decided to bastardize Woodson's legacy because they're more comfortable. And you know what it is? It's what we mentioned earlier. It's the fact that it's the benefactors, those that control them at these academic institutions and universities. They tell them what to do and what not to do. Woodson was right that these people will always create a back door even if there is not one, because they've been trained to do so, and they know what their benefactors will support and what they won't support. And so they won't support, according to these people, an independent voice in behalf of black people in African culture because it's absolutely impossible for anybody, you don't even have to be a scholar, but for anybody to start reading about Woodson and see how important and central African contributions were, whether it's iron uh, smelting, whether it's it's uh, great ideas, myths, proverbs, writing, where Woodson is learning himself more and more about ancient Egypt and ancient Ethiopia. He's writing about this. I don't think he has the greatest clarity, but that's okay. He's a pioneer. This is a century ago, but more and more he's writing because he's learning more. But his organization, unfortunately, has all but abandoned that. The theme this year, by, by the way, is African-Americans and the arts. That's the national theme. What about Africa? So guess what, what we did at our college, what I did. So at Contra Costa College here in Northern California, not a bad theme, African-Americans in the arts, but it doesn't really <clears throat> embrace Woodson's vision. So we shifted that into the theme we're running with this month is cultural arts from classical Africa to the Americas. So whenever I organize a theme, it's to always have the African root and foundation, but also to make it real and relevant for those here in the U.S. We add the Americas always, but we never leave out Africa. And that is consistent with the work of Woodson during his day, <clears throat> as opposed to only African-American. Obviously, we must respect our traditions and ancestors here, but as the great Kwame Ture said, one of the great colleagues of Mukasa Dada or Willie Ricks, uh, one of the great activists, as, as Kwame Ture said, if you start your history in slavery, the best you can be is a good slave. And that's what's taking place now as people move away from the legacy of Dr. Carter G. Woodson. All right.
right, we're going to take a short break. We'll come back. Carl in Palm Beach uh, County has a question for you. I want to dig a deeper into the Negro achievement in, in Africa because I don't think many of our people know how our ancestors, what they did and what they achieved, that every, many things that we use today were created by our ancestors. And I think if our young people knew how much we have contributed, not just on this side of the ocean, but the, on the other side of the Atlantic, they'd be walking around with this, their chest stuck out. We wouldn't be, it wouldn't be you no know, self-hate because we have achieved a lot. We're a special people family. Six away from the top. As I mentioned, we're going to take a quick break. We're back in four minutes, though, right here with uh, Professor Ampin in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If we're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Family Minute after the top of the hour. As we mentioned, we have one of our top scholars with us, Maynu Ampin. Does a lot of research into African history. His latest book is called The History of African Civilizations. It's a workbook, by the way. This morning, we're discussing Carter G. Woodson and African History Month or African Heritage Month, as Professor Ampin prefers to call it. And he's telling us about the, that uh, Carter G. Woodson focused a lot on Africa, but for some reason, and he explained the reasons why it's not being talked about, we discuss about Africans in this country. Uh, just got a tweet from one of our listeners, says, we must fight to keep our BC history, that's before captivity, connect. Life after that is infected with white attack and character assassination. That's one of our brothers in Buffalo just sent me that tweet for you, Professor Aaron Pym. Before we go back to you, let me just, I just got confirmation uh, that uh, immediately following this program, we're going to do a special, a tribute to actually, actually to Joe Madison, one of our colleagues who left us last week. And I had a chance to listen to it, and it, it captures the essence of who Joe was as a broadcaster. So those of you who like Joe Madison, you remember him back in the day, immediately following this program on WOL. So if you're in Baltimore, you can switch over. We're going to do it right here on WOL starting at 10 o'clock this morning, right after this program. But anyway, as I mentioned before we left the break, Carl in Palm Beach County has a question for you. Professor Aaron Pim, he's on line one. Carl, good morning. Good morning, Sam. <clears throat> My question is, you know, I see the way that people most time will take Malcolm and put him in an Arab suit and send him and then they want to identify with what he matured into as opposed to when people fell in love with, with him, with his ex. And when I think about brothers and sisters, that, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but when we come into a, a pan-African mind, I know that we must express the culture of uh, ancient Africa and, and tie ourselves to it. But I do know that Carter G. Wilson was focusing on the systems that were operating inside of America, that we are still up under the miseducation guide of that kind of reality. And I believe because we don't focus on some of those things that Carter talks about in his book and Malcolm talked about when he was Malcolm X, I think we do ourselves a disservice. And I, my question to you was, why is it that brothers that uh, profess uh, Pan-Africanism, they feel comfortable in, in discarding uh, people and exalting people, and they don't really look at us as a whole people because I think there's enough room in our minds to uh, respect everybody. And my question is back, um, why is it that the brothers that are Pan-African have such a uh, disdain for those brothers and sisters that are here in America trying to get these Negroes together? All right. Yeah. Thanks, Carl. Yeah, you asked a great question. Well, it's not either or. It should be, I agree, it should be both and. So it's pretty, you're right, it's pretty easy to look uh, abroad and look at a pan-African and global perspective and not simply the experience here. And um, they, they're both intertwined. They're both linked. 
And um, so the Pan-Africanists know that we have to have a global perspective, as did Woodson, as did Dr. King and Malcolm, but we also have to work at home. Even Marcus Garvey, even the, you know, people distort Garvey and just say it's a back-to-Africa movement. No, it's much more than that. Garvey traveled around the world, but he never went to Africa. His focus was not to just take people to Africa. It was to embrace Africa and embrace it in terms of an economic system, culturally, link our history to Africa. But Garvey was, was based on focusing on, on, uh, on economic institutions right here in the U.S. as he began to organize. But he had a global perspective. And so when he says Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad, it's a united view and vision. So this is the same concept that has to be applied to other leaders, such as Woodson. Woodson definitely was focused here, but what's left out is his focus, his continuous focus on Africa, and that is a common theme. And I'm, I'm appalled that that folks have disconnected Woodson from Africa, and they've disconnected Dr. King from Africa as well. And so this is what happens on a regular basis. Most 99% of the people know almost nothing about the real Dr. King. I, that, that's what I did my graduate work on, literally called the revolutionary Dr. Martin Luther King. The biggest file in the archives on King was on Africa, but yet you have 700, 800,000 page biographies and no mention of that, no chapters, no sections on King and his embracing of Africa. And that's been the theme that I've noticed in my primary or firsthand research that also includes Woodson, where his Africa focus is totally ignored. So I agree, brother. So it has to be not one or the other, but both and in an integrated and holistic view and perspective of these men and women and their total contributions. So what do you think that... If I could, Carl... Okay, go ahead, Carl. Uh, I'm looking at the, the real reality of where we are located right now, and as we move forward into the next presidential election, how important it is for us to put into place some real educational reform. And I think we do ourselves a disservice many times. But here in Florida, uh, Dr. Penn, we got a law called African and African American. It allows us to um, utilize the skill set that you are proficient in, and it also provides us the opportunity to look at those things that have happened here in America. Because they remember they said that they got all of the things for Holocaust. Anytime people wanted to learn something wicked, they come here in America, and this is where they get their root from. And all of those things happen to us, and I just think we need to know ourselves because we don't know. And ain't nobody told us yet. Thank you, man. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Well, if I can just say this, uh, sure. Carl, one of the things is that if we look at contributions and achievements, that's going to automatically take us to Africa, the root and foundation of world achievements. So it has to be a global perspective because, as as Franz Fanon wrote some years ago, we can't not try to catch up with the decadence of Europe or Euro-America. So even if the white supremacist and white nationalists and even if nasty America and this anti-black theme and focus, even if that's out of the way, we still have problems. So we have to learn about the African traditional systems, the African value system, the African social structure that allowed us to work out problems many, many millennia ago. 
So we don't have to try to make something up. We have a great tradition that has taught us and has taught the world how to govern a just society. This is why we have to embrace Africa. And, of course, we live here, and, of course, we need to focus on what's happening here. But if that's the only focus, we're in trouble. Yeah, and there's you know a move afoot to disassociate ourselves from Africa, and, and other groups don't do that. They're proud of the you know if they're Irish or, or Spanish or German or whatever you know here in this country they 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 cleave to that. But they tell us or, you know they try to tell us everything negative about Africa. But having said that, let me get out of my soapbox because I want to know more about the Negro achievements in in Africa that that uh, Carter G. Woodson wrote about. Well, that's where we should start. So I appreciate it. Well, I'll start here uh, with Woodson. He used his journal and the bulletin as platforms to teach. He's not only the editor of these publications, but he frequently contributed articles. So, for example, in, um, in March of 1939, in the bulletin, in that publication, Woodson, he published an article called The Negro in Art from Africa to America. And he said that sculpture reached its... its um, Sorry, he said the sculptor reaches first high level in ancient times under the Egyptians. Egypt is in Africa. I verify that every year. So it reaches highest level. People are always marveling about about uh, art and architecture and sculpture. And Woodson has said it reaches highest level in Africa. And so he said the Sphinx near the pyramids of Giza, the Temple of Luxor, the Rock Temple of Abu Simbel, and the Obelisk show the greatness of Egyptian architecture and sculpture. This is not Dr. Ben. This is not... Dr. John Henry Clark, this is Carter G. Woodson speaking about this in the 1930s. So he speaks about these contributions in art, the contributions in iron smelting and, and metallurgy. He's writing about that in, and making it front and center because the bulletin was widely read and widely distributed. But as he continued to write, uh, he's also indicating other contributions because Woodson was quite aware that writing was something very important and that Africans were great writers. They documented the, the history and the history of people around them. And if we look at contributions in writing, then we can take Woodson's write, uh, his work even further because the person who wrote the very first book in the history of the world is none other than Ptah Hotep. And that was 4,400 years ago, or 2,400 BCE. So Patel Tep's book was 37 Lessons on Ethical and Moral Conduct. The book was focused on how do you show character? How do you respect your elders? How do you uh, make sure that your name is uh, goes forth in a good manner? There's nothing worse than a foul name. How do you avoid conflict? How do you show wisdom in social relationships? This is what Patel Tep wrote. In, in 2400 BCE. So the first book ever written in the history of humanity wasn't about an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It wasn't about fighting. It wasn't about low-level values, but it was to elevate people. And in fact, the book of Ptahotep, and if you see Ptahotep, he's a fundamental African. If you see any image of him, but the first book written is by this man teaching moral concept, moral ideas, and also challenging the list, the lister, the reader that is, with the great concept of knowing how to communicate. And for him and other writers in this tradition of uh, the wisdom text, he says he uses the word sejum. Sejum is the word that translates into hearing or listening, and that is the most common verb that's used in the African. 
African wisdom text from Tep and the other writers after him, to listen is a virtue. And so for him, you have to listen more than you talk. And this is part of the wisdom of uh, Patahotep. So this is one of the great contributions. But if you look it up and go online and look at Mickey Mouse sources, they'll fabricate the history and say that the Chinese are the ones that wrote the first book. Really? How could they write the first book thousands of years after the book of Patahotep? And there's many copies of the book of Patahotep that still exist because it was taught up and down the nation of ancient Kemet. That's why. It's not just one copy. There's numerous copies because it was a common uh, teaching document then. But the Chinese, all they did is take the scrolls and cut them up into individual pieces and bind them. So now people want to split hairs, misrepresent the history, and claim that two, more than 2,000 years later, somehow the Chinese created the first book. No such thing. By that definition, if you had to chop up the, the, the five-foot scroll and so forth and put it in individual pieces, if that's the standard and is not, then there would be no books in the Bible. Because they also were on scrolls. They weren't simply bound, but we call them the books of the Bible because that's what they are. They're on one subject, on one surface, the papyrus. And that's why it's certainly the book of Patalotep. And writing is one of the greatest ways to communicate. So what a contribution. But we don't even have to stop there. We don't call it Egypt. That's the Greek term. We call it Kemet. Why? Because that's the original word, which means the which means. Uh, the black land or the land of black people. That's what Kemet means. In fact, people teach STEM, they talk about STEM and, and all of that, but how do they teach STEM in chemistry, for example, and don't even focus on the root word of their own discipline? So like in chemistry, from Kemet, we get chemistry in modern English. And if you go through the whole etymology, it's, uh, it's, it's from Kemet to chemistry. And yet people teach chemistry and never talk about the, the origin of the names of the discipline's name. But this is another important contribution that gets overlooked, that's not talked about, that's not promoted because people don't know, and you teach what you know. And, so right. and hold that thought right there, Professor Ampere. We're going to take a quick break. I'm just absorbing a lot of what you talked about. And when you come back, though, Patahotep, you mentioned papyrus. If you can explain to the audience what that is, I'm not sure all of us, uh, all of the audience knows what a papyrus is or papyri. And also, what language was was this first book written? Because family learning some stuff today. First book written, of course, by our ancestors. What are your thoughts? Reach out to us, 800-450-7876 or 15 after the topic. I'll be back in four minutes with your response. And Professor Am Pim right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB from the DMV around FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 22 minutes after the top there with our guest, Professor Manu Ampin from Contra Costa College out in California, in Northern California, and is discussing uh, Carter G. Woodson. He says Carter G. Woodson did a lot of work and, and did a lot of publications about Africa as we, as we uh, kick off, or we actually started African History Month or African Heritage Month, Black History Month, whatever we want to call it, family. But, it, you know, we do it 356 right here on this program, so it doesn't really matter. It just the names doesn't really matter. But before we left, though, Professor Ampin was telling us about the first book. This is it, the very first book that was made in, in the world by Patan Hotep. So my question to him was, uh, what language was it in? Was it a pap- on papyrus, papyrus? And if you can explain to the audience who don't know what a papyrus is, I'd appreciate it as well. Professor. Yes, yes, sir. 
so uh, p- a papyrus, uh, from papyrus we get the word paper. And papyrus is a plant. It's a plant that grows in like a marshy, kind of swampy type area, and that's where the papyrus grows in the Nile Valley. So um, what they would do is cut the papyrus stalk, and then they would use that uh, plant. They would cut the stalk, and then they had a three-day or six-day process to actually turn the fibers of the papyrus uh, stalk into uh uh, into to, to, to really a surface made out of the papyrus that they can write on. So when uh, when we mention a papyrus scroll, it's the making of a of a papyrus surface that could be written on or drawn on. And so uh, that was the original surface. And Patahotep wrote his book 4,400 years ago on one scroll and 37 lessons. But uh, it's very important because there's ingenious methods that they use. But this is why we uh, talk about a papyrus scroll because that's what they wrote on. But, again, so that from that word we get paper. And it's always important to look at what's called the etymology of a word. So we know algae means the study of. So etymology means the study of a word's history or the study of a word's origin. So the etymology of paper, it goes back to papyrus. And just like I was mentioning the name, um, even the modern term chemistry, it comes from chemit. So looking at the root word, uh, uh, the root of any word gives us uh, typically the history of that word. But this is a great contribution by Africans. And it's not just Batahotep. He just wrote the first book. But there's a Minamope, there's Ani, there is a... Uh, Kajemni, uh, so many great writers that go back into antiquity and they're teaching moral lessons. So much of this literature is called didactic literature. What didactic literature means is that it's literature or writing that teaches a moral or ethical story. And that's one of the hallmarks of the ancient African writing system. It wasn't silly things, it was practical things to teach good character because character means to build. And if you see all throughout this this African wisdom text, there's always a design for living, and uh, and that's what helps to gu- help to guide the society. We can use the wisdom text today, and it would be great instructions of how one should live his or her life. So, so with, with is that where the Mahat comes from? It was written by uh, Patahotep, or was this separate? Integrated actually, because Ma'at is like uh, the text tells us that the various creation texts and so forth. They tell us that Ma'at was the first daughter of 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 the Creator. So when the Creator creates creates the universe, he creates Ma'at, which represented the law. And it's interesting that they chose that the greatest law that, that represents divine order or divine truth or justice or righteousness and harmony or, or divine law, in, in short, Ma'at was always represented as a, as a female. And they could have chosen any symbol, but the great law, the great balance and harmony, it was, a, it was a woman who always had the ostrich feather on her head. So you would either see Ma'at, the goddess, uh, representing these great principles, or the feather that also was a was her fundamental uh, symbol, and so Patahotep and other writers talk about Maat because everyone was expected to do Maat, think Maat, uh, and have Maat become become an intuitive. 
part of their behavior. It's what guided the society. This is why it's important to know about African traditional culture and traditional values uh, that will help guide us in here in the U.S. So it's not about just blindly going back to Africa, but it's with taking the, the great contributions and integrating that in our march forward. But we can't just foolishly ignore any of this and think that we're going to get very far. What are we going to do other than try to create something that's already been created and established and very successful over thousands of years? So we have to have a big vision, a global vision, that includes these kind of African contributions and values. Look at what's happening in the DMV area or out here in California or where my family's from in Alabama and all over the country we have a problem in the public school system. It damages black students' intelligence by consistently leaving them out of the curriculum. So instead of Africa and black people being a subject, positive subject in these different disciplines, they're usually the object of somebody else's contempt that's completely left out. How somebody going to te teach English and not mention and write about the great Hotep who wrote the first book? How somebody going to teach chemistry and leave out the fact that this was first practiced in Africa? How somebody going to talk about math and geometry and then foolishly talk about Pythagoras. Pythagoras had nothing to do with anything. The Pythagorean theorem, which is A squared plus B squared equals C squared, is not the Pythagorean theorem. He didn't create this mathematical principle. It preexisted more than a thousand years, even before his mama knew him. And so we have the original document. It's in the British Museum. You can see it right there. And it's clearly they're laying out A squared plus B squared equals C squared, or the square of the hypotenuse. Uh, Professor, I'm not good at math. Well, don't worry about it. Just know that this is how math and geography works. It helps to organize society. And Africans created this on a document with, uh, with adva 87 advanced mathematical problems. And yet students don't know this. They don't learn this. But we know the name of the ancient African author who copied an older African document to to a newer document because they didn't have copiers or scanners or anything like that. So scribes or writers had to literally copy from old text and put them on a new surface because over time, papyrus and paper, it decays. That's why in archives today, you know, archivists use acid-free paper. But without that kind of technology, you're going to have to find a way to recopy old documents. Otherwise, they uh, begin to crumble and disappear. So uh, a, a scribe almost copied these, math, these 87 mathematical principles and problems and copied them on a new surface about 1600 BCE or 3600 years ago, which is more than 1,000 years after the Greek Pythagoras. So it should not be called the Pythagorean theorem. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. If anything, it must be called the uh, Amos theorem, who's the African writer or scribe who copied the document to a newer surface. But this is how history is distorted and lost when names are changed and contributions are omitted. So we cannot allow that. And I have a whole section in my book on a history of African civilizations on these kind of contributions. 30 minutes after the top of the hour. Again, the language that was used, uh, I, I know it wasn't English, it wasn't French. So what kind of language did they use? And how, how do we, uh, was it the hieroglyphics? Can you explain that part of, of this for us? Yes, sir. 
the uh, Greeks called it hieroglyphics, but the original name is Medu Netcher. Medu Netcher is the name of the language that the Africans called their language, and it means divine script or holy script or holy writing. So Medu Netcher is the language they wrote in, um, and, and uh, the Greeks came along later. They didn't know African names or words, couldn't pronounce them, couldn't read them. So they changed from Medu Netcher to, 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 to so-called hieroglyphs. But what's, what's amazing about the Medu Netcher writing is they use two forms of writing, just like we, we do today. They use cursive on uh, papyrus documents, you know, if it was just letters or government documents. They, they use papyrus because they wrote in cursive. Why do people write in cursive, which is one form of writing? Because it's a faster way to write. You're not really taking your pen off of the surface. So we write in cursive just the way they wrote in cursive, and that's usually on a document like Patel Tep and other writers. The second form of writing is when we print. So in, in, um, in classical Africa, when they print, that's when we look at the glyphs or the images. And you can see an image of a person or an animal or a building because the, those, those images, those, they're symbols, and they convey an idea that has an immediate meaning, for example. So you might see, for example, uh, let's just say an elder an image of an elder leaning on a staff. That means, you know, somebody with high rank, for example. Or you might see an image of, uh, of just legs walking in one direction or another that has to do with movement. And so people can get the idea. Or you might see a sun, you know, the sun in the sky would raise. And that might mean, depends on context, day or daylight. So anybody can, can make these symbols out and begin to have at least – and understanding, even if they don't read all of the Medu Netra, they can see the symbol and get an idea, a general idea of what's being referred to. But they use those glyphs, those images, those symbols, because of the immediate meaning it would have when people see it. And it's not just, one thing that's extraordinary about this is that they're not just, it's not just when they wrote in uh, with the symbols and glyphs, it was geometry, it was proportion, it was balance, it was harmony. You see the the exquisite details and the amount of time to make sure that all of the images, all of the metal nature symbols are in perfect harmony, the vertical harmony, the horizontal harmony, the color pattern that they chose. It's an immediate impact when people see it. It's like, wow, what greatness. It, ha it does something to people. It motivates people when they see the writing in its heyday when Africans were still in control of their own region in Kemet and in the Nile Valley, and that's why looking at Medu Netcher or divine writing or divine script in the original is stunning because it's the clear glyphs, uh, it's the harmony, the balance and proportion, but it's the color scheme that they actually used that was truly extraordinary. And we should always add that when the foreigners came in thousands of years later, they imitated, but they couldn't duplicate. And that's when you find crude, clumsy, and incompetent imitation where they didn't know what they were doing. It was not divine writing anymore. It was just uh, amateurish copying that really looks crude, clumsy, and incompetent. It should be discarded when people are trying to make it seem like the Greeks, the Romans, and other foreigners somehow had to do with the earlier, earlier classical African period in Kemet. All right, hold that thought right there. Got a tweet question for you. And uh, also, we want to find out more about what Carter G. Woodson did in Africa and his works in, about Africa, because he says, as you mentioned, it's been pushed to the side. And we all talk about what we did here 
once we got here. But again, our history starts before we got here. Most of us who listen to this program understand that. 26 minutes away from the top, they are family. We've got to take a quick break. Our last break, by the way, and we'll be back in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. 21 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, Professor Manu Ampin from Contra Costa College out in California, Northern California. Before we go back, though, let me just remind you, coming up uh, immediately following this program, we're going to do a special a tribute to Joe Madison. It starts at 10 o'clock, and it's well done. If those of you folks who think you know Joe or remember Joe, this particular program uh, captures the essence of who Joe Madison was as a broadcaster. As many of you know, he left us uh, last last Thursday. So, and he's also on do, on WOLB as well as WOL. So, if you're on OLB, if you're in Baltimore, you can switch over at ten o'clock and listen to this because it's uh, it's very well done. That's all I'm going to say. I'm I was. Uh, Presently surprised at how they captured Joe's essence as a broadcaster, so make sure you check it out immediately following this program. Later this week, we're going to be joined by civil rights uh, activist, uh, uh, he's still active, Brother Willie Mukasa Dada Ricks. You know, he marched with Dr. King, Kwame Ture. He was also part of SNCC with John Lewis and, and Mayor for Life, Marion Barry. So we're going to hear some, a lot of them, uh, civil rights stories. Also, uh, we're also going to look at black music's influence on the civil rights movement with um, uh, musicologist Bill Carpenter. And we're going to talk black politics with uh, black politics expert Dr. James Taylor from the University of San Francisco. Dick Gregory's youngest son, Yance, is going to join us with, uh, with Greg, the stories that Greg told him about the civil rights movement. And also, we we're going, uh, who's going to be here? Oh, we're going to take a look at the Black Wall Street through the eyes of uh, Karen uh, Karen Carrington. She's a, a Tulsa native, and she knows all about what happened at, at Black Wall Street. So if you are in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WLB. If you're in the DMV, you're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, Professor Ampere, let's go back to, to what was the... What, the first book that you mentioned was written by one of our ancestors. What else was created by us? Because, you know, I, th- I think if our people understand that our ancestors created uh, and they changed the names, I guess, were the, was it the Greeks who did it, who, 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 who stole our, our legacy? Can you explain that for us? Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Yeah, the, the Greeks have been given credit for our legacy, but they didn't actually steal it themselves. It was in the late... 1700s and early 1800s at the University of Göttingen in Germany. This is when a group of scholars and, and racist scientists got together and they literally rewrote the history of the world. They turned the history of the world upside down and then all of a sudden where Africans were being given credit, which the Greeks had no problems in doing in their in their day, but the modern racist scholars, they decided that they would change the history of the world, turn it upside down, and then from that process that ended about 1830, when they finally finished this uh, outrageous project, then all of a sudden we get the Immaculate Conception of Greece. 
suddenly Greece emerged with no antecedents, no influence. The Greeks didn't have any problem giving credit to Africans, but the modern races did, and they created an Aryan model of history. And this Aryan model has misled us now for the last 200 years. So they've been give, they gave credit to the Greeks, and and uh, of course the great author George G.M. James in Stolen Legacy, he chronicles this uh, outlandish theft that has taken place in in, uh, in recent times. But we have to go back to the original African contributions, whether it's in writing. I mentioned even the term chemistry itself goes back to classical Africa. I mentioned the, the mathematical contributions. It should be called the Amos Papyrus, where there's 87 advanced mathematical problems without a single error, including showing uh, 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 geometry, trigonometry, algebra, arithmetic, no errors at all and showing very clearly in, in uh, multiple problems the A squared plus B squared equals C squared. That formula is clearly laid out, but if we want to go back even further or even more widely, we look at even the original calendar. The original solar calendar was created by Africans going back more than 6,200 years, an accurate solar calendar with 365 days. Nobody in Europe could have created a calendar based on accurate time because they thought incorrectly that the earth was the center of the universe rather than the the great and mighty sun they had no concept of the earth uh, revolving around the sun that represents a year in the solar calendar but africans established that more than 6200 years ago and and so from that original calendar from ancient kemet you we get the the so-called julian calendar because Julius Caesar invaded Kemet, or so-called Egypt, in forty and in, in, uh, in forty-eight, in forty-seven before the Common Era, and he had the African priests, Sasanians, he had the priests to revamp the Roman calendar, which was totally out of whack. They went by the cycles of the moon and not the sun, so they never could figure out accurate time. They couldn't predict it. And their calendar was totally chaotic. It was 29 days, 30 days, 31 days, total chaos. And when they recognized that the calendar was out of whack, they just add a month, just add time because they didn't know what they were doing. So Sasanese was hired to fix the Roman calendar. So for the first time in the history of Europe, the first accurate solar calendar was in the year 46 BCE. That's over 4,000 years after the original African calendar. With the African calendar had the 12 months and of uh, 30 days, and there were three weeks in each month. So each week in the African calendar was 10 days. So people would work three days. Uh, sorry, excuse me. They would work seven days and three days off. That would be a week. Work seven days, three days off. Work seven days, three days off. That would be a month with three 10-day weeks. But uh, when the foreigners came in under Julius, they changed all of that. So instead of the 10-day week, now we got weeks through the seven days, and seven doesn't go into 30 equally. So it's, it, they turn it into nothing but chaos. All the names of the deities, the African deities for the weeks of the year, uh, of the weeks of the month, and the, the months of the year were changed. So people don't know today because Julius, in taking over the African calendar, and uh, calling it the Julian calendar in the year 46 B.C., he decided to name a month after him after himself. That's where we got July, named after Julius Caesar. His successor, the European Augustus, said, hey, I kind of like some of that. Why don't I name a month after me? And that's where we got 
August. And people don't know that this ain't nothing original to Europe. The calendar that we're dealing with today in the year 2024 goes back over 4,200 years with a, with a accurate solar calendar created first by Africans and then stolen and taken over more than 4,000 years later. So we have to give great respect to those African astrologers, astronomers, and scientists that created an accurate understanding of time. And uh, this is one of the great contributions. Now we call it the modern calendar or the Gregorian calendar. That's the calendar that we are using today. But it's so many... Uh, so much chaos, uh, like, if, well, I just, just one example, I mean, even the months of the year are all off. Like December, deck, the root word deck means 10, but yet December is the 12th month, so it's off. Uh, and no, the root of that is nine, but it's the 11th month. So everything is out of whack, and it would take an entire show, Brother Carl, to really unravel how, the Europeans have stolen an African ca ca uh, calendar and now have created chaos. And the original African calendar was based on balance, harmony, and proportion, where there were 30-day uh, months. They were all equal and even, and they created this great calendar. And then if you do 12 months times, times uh, 30 days, that's 360-day calendar. And at the end of the year, which at the end of the year they were added five festival days to come up to the 365. What a contribution. It's not just through theory, but it's also through generations of observations and calculations that must be given to Africans who created this first accurate solar calendar. And we can add so many other things, even in medicine, the first surgical document, the oldest known surgical document with 48 surgical cases dealing with neurosurgery. This clearly is an African contribution, but what we have are modern Europeans who named it after themselves. So in the 1860s, different documents were bought, and those documents that were bought and purchased were named after the one who bought it. So the surgical document, rather than being associated with ancient Africans, is called the Edwin Smith surgical document, simply because he bought it more than 3,400 years after this great surgical document was written by ancient Africans with a profound understanding of the brain, the skull, and the central nervous system, that all has now been uh, stolen from Africans because a European bought the papyrus in 1862, and the propagandists have decided to name it after Edwin Smith rather than the original African uh, uh, medical writers in antiquity. All right, we got a tweet question for you, uh, Professor. I'm pinning the tweet that says, Abari Ghani, Professor, please discuss John G. Jackson's thesis in his book, Christianity Before Christ, and why do Christians say amen at the end of their prayers? Hit the poop. Yes. Okay, so I, I appreciate that question. John G. Jackson, one of the great historians, he wrote uh, pamphlets like Ethiopia and the Origin of Civilization. He wrote books like Introduction to African Civilization. He wrote books like Ages of Gold and Silver. He made a contribution in the early 20th century, and he was still with us even into the 1990s. So we, we give great credit and respect to John G. Jackson because he is um, he, he wrote books like Christianity Before Christ. So he's making and he made important um, contributions, to say the least, and uh, it was one other point I was going to mention, but uh, yes, he should be highly respected because of those those kind of contributions. And oh, I'm sorry, the ner the, the the origin of the name Amen. I did a whole presentation on that, so please go to my YouTube channel. 
go to Maynu MPIM to my YouTube channel, and I posted a presentation I did on that very question, which is on the origin and influence of the word Amen. So then everybody would know that why Christians, Muslims, and Jews call on the name Amen. They say it means so be it. Not originally, Amen or Amen was the name of an African king, as the story goes, that was so powerful and successful that when he passed on, he was elevated to godlike status. But the original name Amen means hidden or unseen. That's the original translation, hidden or unseen. And, it, and the modern people have said it meant so be it in the last you know couple of thousand years. But long before that, it goes back to ancient Kush. Even before it came in ancient Kush, they used the name Amen, and you find it in many of the ancient names, the word Amen. But please go to my YouTube channel, and you can see the full presentation on that question. All right, another question or a comment for you. Uh, the person said, Furman says he will do. Uh, Ethiopia, this other uh, tweeter says, Ethiopia is on a 12-month, 30-day calendar with five days for 13 months, 13 months of sunshine. Can you comment on that? Yeah, the Ethiopian calendar, uh, that's where Christianity was born as an institution in Ethiopia. And I'm going to be taking groups to Ethiopia this summer. So reach out to me at MakeNewMPIM at Gmail, and you can check it out. But the Ethiopians are very wise. They represent an African understanding of real important cycles. When I was in Ethiopia, for example, uh, some years ago, somebody asked, Hey, brother, why do you all start your new day in the middle of the night? And I thought about it. I said, You know what? Good question. How could just after midnight, 1201, when it's still dark out, how could that be a new day? That's the American concept. It doesn't make sense. So in Ethiopia, the new day doesn't start in the middle of the night, <laughs> at midnight or 1201. The new day starts at 6 a.m. when it's light outside. So their calendar is actually in harmony with natural rhythms. 6 a.m. represents the beginning of the day in the Ethiopian calendar and society. 6 p.m. represents the beginning of the night in Ethiopian tradition, the calendar, and society. In fact, the New Year's Day is typically on uh, 9-11. That's the New Year's Day in the Ethiopian calendar as well. But we should look at the Ethiopian calendar because it's an old calendar, ancient calendar, and is more consistent with natural cycles. That's what's special about the Ethiopian view and vision about how rhythm, rhythms in nature actually work, and that's an African concept, which is very different than our uh, idea that we get from Europeans. How could January 1st, for example, mean anything? It's not a new season. It's nothing happening in the world. It's because the Gregorian calendar, they changed the Julian calendar, which was an alteration of the original African calendar. The African calendar would start always around August 1st, August 2nd. Why? Because that's when the Nile River overflowed right at that time. Every year, the Nile would overflow its banks and irrigate the crops. Uh, so that's why it was the new year. And at the same time, when the Nile overflowed its banks to irrigate the crops for the farming nation, at the same time, the Sopdek star, or Sirius star, appeared in the horizon. So when the people saw that star and the Nile overflowed, it's a natural uh, natural occurrences. That's when there was a New Year's Day and New Year's celebration. That's exactly what happens in Ethiopia today. If you ask them when's the new year, they're going to say when the crops begin to sprout 
uh, when grass begins to grow, that's when it's a new year. So they can give you an approximate time, but not an actual day as you go to the Omo Valley area where I spend a lot of time doing primary research. And every time I ask the elders and the chiefs that question, they always give the general when the New Year's Day would begin because it has to be in correlation with natural phenomena. And there's right. much to learn about the Ethiopian system. Yeah, we're flat out of time speaking about time. But folks want more information from you? How? Because you, I know you're going to Egypt as well as Ethiopia. How do they reach you? Yes, uh, folks can reach me. Uh, probably the easiest way would be Manu Ampim at Gmail. That's M-A-N-U and Ampim, A-M-P-I-M at Gmail. And they can learn about my Egypt tour, Ethiopia tour, as well as they can get my book as well. Or you can go to advancingtheresearch.org and uh, reach me there and purchase material and know what we're doing. All righty. Thank you for all the information you shared with us this morning. Thank you, Brother Carl. So it's African Heritage Month. Thank you, Brother. That's right, African Heritage Month. Family, stay with us. Don't uh, log off or tune out. It's coming over. Immediately following this program, we do a special on a tribute to Joe Madison, one of our colleagues here. And if you're in D, uh, if you're in Baltimore, just switch over to WOL because it's only going to be on WOL. Having said that, stay strong, stay positive. Please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.